This episode of Pod Cemetery is brought to you by the Bioweapons Division of Wayland Utani Corp. Wayland Utani, building better worlds. Hello, my name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. And this is Pod Cemetery, where we dissect horror movies like the rotting corpses that they are. And it's Alien Week on Pod Cemetery with 1979's Alien and 2012's Prometheus. But before we get to our movies, Kelsey, how do we start the show? Horror trivia. Give me what you got. Who wrote and directed A Nightmare on Elm Street? Wes Craven. That is correct. All right. Kelsey. Yes. You probably won't know this, but I think it's interesting. Okay. Maybe you can guess. All right. What film did Ridley Scott see that convinced him to make a sci-fi movie? This is specifically referring to Alien. 2001 A Space Odyssey? No, although it is one of his influences. Okay. He was going to make Tristan and Isolde, and he scrapped that. And decided he wanted to make a sci-fi movie after seeing Star Wars. And so then he found Alien. Nice. Alien, which is directed by, like I say, Ridley Scott. Written by Dan O'Bannon with story contributions by Ronald Susset, who is one of Dan O'Bannon's writing partners. Starring Sigourney Weaver, Tom Skerritt, John Hurt... Harry Dean Stanton, Ian Holm, Veronica Cartwright, Yafet Kodo, and introducing Balahi Badejo as the Xenomorph. That is like a murderer's row of actors. They're all awesome and I love them all. Mm. Specifically, this cast could have been like anything. When they wrote the story, Dan O'Bannon made a point of only referring to characters by their last name. And not identifying their gender. He did not have in mind specifically that Ripley was going to be a woman, but it was kind of built that she absolutely could have been. Dan O'Bannon, we know from writing and directing Return of the Living Dead, (laughs) which is apparently infamous on the podcast now. And The guy who wrote Alien wrote The Return of the Living Dead? Yes, and directed it. He also wrote with Ron Shusset, the guy who uh, did helped him with the story on this one, uh, Total Recall. <laughs> yeah. Walter Hill did a rewrite, an uncredited one, though, specifically making Sigourney Weaver and Veronica Cartwright's characters women. That's when it was established that they were going to be women. He also kind of apparently depoeticized a lot of the dialogue and made it much more natural, like real miners and ship hands and stuff like that would be talking and not being so poetic like it was going to be. Like I say, Ridley Scott wanted to make this movie after seeing Star Wars uh, in 1977, but also he references 2001 A Space Odyssey for its depiction of outer space, as well as Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Apparently him and Dan O'Bannon both used this as a reference point and encouraged actors and production hands and stuff like that to watch it, to get a feel for what they wanted when it came to the horror elements of the movie. All that said, Kelsey, 
What is Alien about? A ship of miners of ore are woken earlier than they are supposed to be from their sleep on their way home because there's supposedly an SOS signal being sent. And if they encounter any life in space, their contract says they have to stop and investigate. Yes, that is true. Now, there are multiple versions of this movie. Specifically, there's the original theatrical cut as well as a director's cut. Uh, Ridley Scott did actually work on the director's cut at the urging of Fox. Uh, He decided not to put in a bunch of deleted scenes, which is what Fox wanted him to do. He's like, I mean, I deleted them for a reason. So at the same time that he oversaw the process of restoring the original theatrical cut, he also took the opportunity to incorporate some other elements, that sort of thing, extend some shots, show some shots that weren't originally in there, mix things up a little bit to make it a little bit more modern as well. And he says he likes this cut, and that's why he gave it to them to actually show. It's something he is proud of. But he still thinks that the original theatrical release is the definitive version of the movie. So while there is a director's cut, the director suggests you watch the theatrical cut. But you have this director's cut as an option. So that's the version that we watched is the theatrical cut. It's available most everywhere for about 3 or $4 to rent or 14 or $15 to buy. We watched it on our Blu-ray quadrilogy set, which has both versions. Should people watch Alien? Yes. I mean, come on. Duh. Yeah, duh. Uh, before we get started, I do also want to point out that one of the things that makes Alien so iconic is its production design. So throughout our discussion, you'll hear me talk about two specific concept designers. There's Ron Cobb and H.R. Giger. H.R. Giger gets a lot of the credit because he specifically designed the Xenomorph. He was in charge of everything Alien. So the what we find out are engineers, but the space jockey and all of that stuff, he designed the LV, what is it, 426? Uh, he designed all that, and he designed the Xenomorph, the facehugger, all that stuff. But they specifically had somebody else do all the human stuff so as to make them starkly contrasted. And that person is Ron Cobb. So he did the Nostromo and everything human about the movie. So you might hear me talk about the two of them. So if it gets confusing, that's why. You can take our advice or leave it. I highly recommend you take it, right? Yes. Yeah, of course. Uh, But when we get back, we will talk about 1979's Alien. from 20th Century Fox. All right, Kelsey, get us started. How does Alien begin? Well, since it's your fav- one of your favorite movies, I yeah. figured I'd let you pull the reins on this one, and I would interject as we went. Okay, so I didn't write down, like, individual plot beats. Neither I did down. I. I wrote down a lot of, like, moments, so and, like, specific interesting things about those moments. So we might go back and forth on the specific plot, but the whole thing opens up with the famous title sequence, one of the all-time great title fade-ins. <laughs> it's just incredible. 
it's so simple. It's just geometric shapes that fade in, forming the parts of the word alien. <laughs> See, yeah, this is why I wanted you to take it, because I would have totally skipped all that. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> it's also of note because it was designed by famous graphic artist Saul Bass. Saul Bass might sound familiar because we've talked about him in the past. He did a lot for Scorsese and Hitchcock. For Hitchcock, he did North by Northwest, Vertigo, and Psycho. So the incredible Psycho opening, that's Saul Bass. Uh, For Scorsese, he did Goodfellas, Cape Fear, and Casino. He did Spartacus, West Side Story. It's a mad, 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 mad world. Uh, He also did many movie posters. Of course, a lot of those awesome Hitchcock posters for many of the same movies I mentioned earlier, including that yellow Shining poster where the T in the Shining has that face in it. Uh He designed that. Ah. So just this incredible opening title sequence. And we see... A ship and its cargo. So the Nostromo itself is a tow ship. It's about 800 feet long. But the thing that we see in the beginning here is the place where the ore is actually stored. And that's about a mile and a half long. So the Nostromo itself, where all the action takes place, is just the smaller ship that tows all this ore. Mm. Nostromo is, in fact, a name. It's the name of a book. And a character in said book by Joseph Conrad, who wrote Heart of Darkness. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also mentioned the lifeboat later on, which is a part of the Nostromo. It's called the Narcissus, which is the type of flower. Also part of the title of another Conrad book, whose complete title I will not mention. The iconography around the Nostromo is complete and functional. So all the symbols you see, everything means something. And it's one of those things that you can watch on multiple views. So if you watch it the first time, you probably didn't recognize hardly any of it. You might have recognized the little symbol that looks like the Purina puppy chow symbol. You know, the the red and white checkerboard symbol. I did not notice. Yeah, see, this is what I mean. But then when you watch it again and you notice all the symbols around every door that tells you where everything is located and what everything is. Like I said, the production design is incredible. Ron Cobb created what he called the semiotic standard for all commercial transstellar utility lifter and heavy element transport spacecraft, (laughs) which is this in-world semiotic guide. Semiotics is just the study of of symbols, basically, (laughs) and what they mean. There's an article about that. It's on a website that's all about typesets. They go into the typesets, but then they also go into the semiotic design Bible, and it's just incredible. I will tweet it. Again, just goat production design. It's incredible. And this is the Nostromo, and this is where everything takes place. Okay. So So what happens? So the crew is woken up (laughs) from their sleep. Uh Uh-huh. And they're all eating the food, and they all talk about how terrible the food is. It is, yes. Except for the coffee. Yafit Kodo thinks that the coffee is the only good thing on the ship. And then the captain i guess gets called into the cockpit to hear a message that only he gets to hear yeah that's mother that he's in by the way it's not the actual cockpit it's uh basically a computer that you sit inside and at first we're like oh look at all those little flashing lights that are everywhere it's one of those sort of 50s style (laughs) you know the lights all light up but they don't actually have any labels or mean anything but if you look closely every light is labeled Every single one. Uh. It's insane. But basically, you're inside the brain of this computer called Mother, and they talk to this computer. It's like sort of a semi 
AI. It can interpret questions and provide responses. <laughs> and it communicates the wills and objectives of the Wayland yutani Corporation that they work for. So there's Wayland yutani which is what it's called in this movie. Every subsequent movie, it's called Wayland yutani They add an extra D on there for some reason. <laughs> Who knows why? <laughs> so... He hears the message, and he comes out to tell the crew, and there is John Hurt smoking a cigarette, so good thing we invented the thing. <laughs> the cigarette's in space. It's the final frontier, Nick. Yeah, but wouldn't they blow up in an all-oxygen environment? Probably. But it's an easy fix. One line of dialogue. Thank God we invented the, you know, whatever device. And he explains that they have not yet reached the outer limit. They have been woken up early. They are only half halfway home. There's still 10 months to go to get home. Yeah. Uh, he explains that there's been a transmission of an SOS in the middle of space. And these guys who have been griping about their pay all this time are like, hey, wait a minute. This is a commercial flight, not a rescue mission. But once they find out they're going to get paid, they don't care. Yeah, this is Parker and Brett. It's Yafit Kodo and Harry Dean Stanton. They're basically like the engineer crew. They fix and take care of the ship and all all of its equipment. So they go out to this ship, which is on a planet. Yeah, it's on LV-426. It's totally by memory. I'm, I'm sorry if that's wrong. Uh, I think I got that question wrong on a trivia uh, way back when. Probably. But yeah, they land, they find this rock and they land on it and it has, what we find out in the next movie we're going to watch is an engineer ship or what the production crew called the croissant. <laughs> As you can imagine due to its shape why it's called the croissant. Yes. We see Ripley checking on stuff and those two guys who were angry about their pay are start mad because they're working more than they thought they would and they're like are we gonna get paid for this again and she's like you'll get whatever's coming to you yeah foreshadowing <laughs> yeah because the the ship got damaged when they took it down to the surface and so they're working on uh getting it fixed it's gonna take almost a full day to get it fixed there's a fun exchange where she pretends like well they can't hear her so she is like, why don't you just fuck off? And they're like, huh, what? Yeah, and then she gets frustrated and leaves. Yeah. And it turns out that Yafit Koto was controlling that the whole time. Uh -huh. <laughs> hey, Ripley, I want to ask you a question. If they right. find what they're looking for out there, does that mean we get bullshit? Don't worry, Parker, yeah. You'll get whatever's coming to you. What? Why don't you just fuck off? What? <laughs> She walks into where Ash is. And Ash he, is played by Ian Holm. Who we know from. Several things, but he's probably most famous for playing the elder Bilbo Baggins in the Lord of the Rings movies. Yes. Yeah. I also remember him from things like uh, From Hell, but he's a very famous actor. Oh, he's the priest in Fifth Element. Yes. You probably know him as that. Cornelius. Cornelius. <laughs> Anyway. He's Polonius and Hamlet from 1990. And Hamlet didn't say that. That Polonius guy did. <laughs> I remember Mel Gibson accurately. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so she walks in and he can't get the computer to do something. And she's like, I got it. And sits down and like, she's better than he is. Yeah. Or and so they, they were kind of work together to decipher this SOS 
Yeah. And what do they find out about it? It is not an SOS. It is a warning. Stay away, basically. Yes. And Ripley wants to contact them and get them out of there, but their comms are down and they can't really communicate to them very well. And so Ash says, what would be the point? I mean, they'll be back here by the time you get out to them. So it looks like a warning. I'm going to go out after them. What's the point? I mean, by the, the time it takes to get there, you'll they'll know if it's a warning or not. Yes. We also get to meet Jonesy during this point. Yes. So Jones, the cat who series spoilers, it lives the longest of any character in the entire franchise. I love Jonesy. <laughs> anyway. The rest of the crew is walking out to the spaceship, and Lambert wants to turn back, but John Hurt says that they must go on for some reason. Well, there's so much interesting stuff going on here. And Hurt is also kind of like an adventure junkie. When they say, hey, we got to get out there and actually go on the surface, he's like, I volunteer. (laughs) He's like, yeah, I knew you would. (laughs) So they get inside the spaceship. And they find the space jockey. Uh, space Jockey is actually what the crew called it. It's not actually the name given to it. We don't know what it is at this point in the lore of the franchise. Uh, there are a lot of terms like that we'll use like this, like face hugger and chest burster. These are terms that were used in production and used by fans, but they're never actually named anything in the series itself. That prop was 26 feet tall. And... They almost didn't make it because Fox was like, this is going to be the most expensive set in the entire film and it has almost no role. Like, why Why are we going to spend this money on it? And so Ron Cobb, who I mentioned earlier, convinced them that this would be the film's, quote, Cecil B. DeMille shot, who, you know, made all those really famous old timey Hollywood shots of like, you know, of like the Egyptian statues and stuff like those giant sets that they would have. And so this would be the big shot that would tell people that it wasn't just another B movie because they were able to do this. That's the reason we get the entirety of what Prometheus is. Prometheus is centered entirely around the space jockey. It looks like this elephant man skeleton thing. It's really tall. They notice that, its chest has exploded from the inside and that's what killed it. And that's all we know in order to make this thing look even bigger though, those wide shots, Ridley Scott put his kids in small outfits, kind of like what they do in Lord of the Rings, you know, with that sort of forced perspective thing. Mm -hmm. One of those sons is Luke Scott, the director of Morgan. So I thought that would be interesting <laughs> for the purposes of our show. That is interesting. Uh, yeah, and uh, he is also involved in a small way in Prometheus when we get to that later. Ron Cobb, his backstory for the space jockeys was basically like the whole race was wiped out at some point And they had this chamber full of these dormant eggs that are just waiting for something to come along. And the space jockeys show up at this location. They're on a mission. They're exploring archaeological exploration, kind of like, you know, Star Trek or something like that. That's where they find these eggs. They get attacked. They go back to the ship, basically kind of the same thing that happens in this movie. Then the chestburster explodes from this space jockey's chest and kills 
a lot of people until finally it's killed and they're able to send off this message. But now they're stranded here at this location and they end up just all starving slowly to death. And that's a story of what happened to these people here. You don't actually get it in the movie, but if you want some backstory, that's it. The space jockey itself was designed by H.R. Giger. Of course, like I said. Thank you, Chris. You're welcome. So about those eggs. There are eggs in here. And they, they, the lasers, apparently, this may be apocryphal, but apparently the Who were rehearsing for a stage show in the lot next door. And so they asked if they could borrow their laser lights. That may or may not be true. It's the thing that John Hurt pierces with his hand with the fog and the lasers. And that's when he finds the first egg, actually. A whole series of them. This entire chamber which is just the same chamber with the space jockey removed, by the way. Uh, they reused that set. Filled with all these eggs. And what, is, what the fuck does he do? He touches it. <laughs> and it's all gross. And then it opens and he gets attacked. Yeah, this thing pops out at him and then grabs his helmet and then there's screaming. How does it get in through the helmet? It melts it. Oh. Yeah, oh. you see the helmet melted in when we, when they get him on board later. Oh. Yeah. They didn't know how the alien was going to get on the ship and this was their solution. Apparently the idea is to make all the men in the audience very uncomfortable because effectively what's happening here is this alien is is raping John Hurt through the mouth. Yes, yes. And this is also why they chose John Hurt and why they didn't want any of the women to get. This is why it doesn't happen to Lambert happens to John Hurt instead. It felt inappropriate, but they wanted to make the male viewers a little uncomfortable. <laughs> so he's been attacked. Yeah. And they are going to try to get him back to the ship to save him. When they get there, Ripley says no. Yeah, as well she should. Mm-hmm. Totally the right decision. And she was right the whole time. Not letting him on this ship. Now that's funny because in the prequel... You're supposed to feel like Charlize Theron is in the wrong. And like she's, she's not. being a bitch. No, exactly. no. She is totally right. Yeah. With Lambert and Dallas out, outside the ship, Dallas being Tom Skerritt, he's the captain, and Lambert, Veronica Cartwright, is his first in command, that makes Ripley in charge. And so she's in charge of the whole ship while they're gone. And she says, no, I can't let you in. Standard quarantine procedure is 24 hours. We got to keep you quarantined for 24 hours. And they make the argument he's going to die. And she says, if you let him in here, maybe we all die. Mm -hmm. Open the hatch. Wait a minute. If we let it in, the ship could be infected. You know the quarantine procedure. 24 hours for decontamination. It could die in 24 hours. Open the hatch. Listen to me. If we break quarantine, we could all die. So that's why the quarantine exists. And who lets him in? The Hobbit. Yes, Ash does. Ian Holm does. And he's the science officer on board the ship. He should know and respect the quarantine procedure. Later on, he says, oh, he just wasn't thinking of it. He forgot about it or something like that. Mm-hmm. And he lets them on. And so John Hurt's basically passed out. They get him out of his helmet into the med bay. And they can investigate. And they see this thing latched to its face. It's pulsating, and it has its tail wrapped around his throat. Mm -hmm. And every time they touch it, it squeezes a little tighter. Mm -hmm. But he's in a coma, so he doesn't know what's going on during this time. And they, they assume that the pulsating is it feeding him air, keeping him alive. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's a very creepy Oh, yeah. It's really, really creepy. Until at one point they decide they have to get it off his face. And so they get a cutter and they cut one of its digits off. Try and remove one of the digitals from his finger. You're going to do what? Finger. And then all this acid comes out. And lands on the floor and starts eating through the floor. Mm-hmm. And they follow it down deck by deck until they finally find out where it where it landed. And they, they think, okay, well, it must be using acid for blood. And Yafet Kodo Parker says... It's a defense mechanism. Yeah, well, it's the ultimate defense. You wouldn't dare kill it. It's got a wonderful defense mechanism. You don't dare kill it. Did you notice that Ash at one point tells the other doctors to take off their masks? No. Well, I guess, yeah, I mean, I know it happens, but I hadn't thought of it. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Anyway, Ripley tells her boss, Scarrett, I don't trust this science officer. Where did he come from? And he explains, well, I'd never worked with him before. Yeah, I worked with this one officer for multiple missions, and then the company gave us this guy for this one. So it's not his normal security officer and nobody knows him. And she says, I don't trust him. Tom Skerritt says, I don't trust anybody. Did you ever ship out with Ash before? I went out five times with another science officer. They replaced him two days before we left Thetis with Ash. Hmm? I don't trust him. I don't trust anybody. Mm-hmm. But you notice something Tom Skerritt doesn't talk about? Hmm. The fact that he broke protocol. He doesn't make his case. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't apologize. He doesn't dare bring it up. I think he knows he was wrong. So later they come back to the med bay and the facehugger's gone. So they put John Hurt in the little bay, like the auto dock bay, and they go looking for this facehugger. Where did it go? Where did it get to? Until it falls onto Sigourney Weaver, but it's dead. I still don't understand this whole birthing process. Yeah, so they did this on purpose to... to Continually make it really, really interesting. Evolutionarily, it's very confused. (laughs) But the idea is it starts as an egg laid by the queen. The egg births the facehugger. The facehugger injects its own eggs into a host. And that host gestates this new being, this completely separate being, on its own, and it, and it ages very fast until finally it bursts out of their chest, and then that grows really quick into the xenomorph that we know. And that's it. That's the process. It just has multiple steps where there's two birthing processes in this in this whole thing. But why? It's a good question. <laughs> I don't know. It just makes them much more memorable. It keeps it exciting that you have multiple things to be worried about. We don't get the queen in this movie, but you get the egg, which is scary. You get the face hugger that comes out of it, which is scary. You get the face hugging itself, which is scary. You get the chest bursting, which is scary. You get the thing that comes out of it, which is scary. And then that grows in size into the xenomorph, which is also scary. So it's like several phases of terror that you get, and it's new every time. So eventually, John Hurt wakes up. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, they study the thing, they talk about what it could be, all of that. But eventually he wakes up. He seems fine. He doesn't even remember what happened. And so they're like, okay, good. The thing's dead. You're fine. You seem to check out. They're all having food when suddenly... He starts to cough and sputter. And choke. 
until he falls over on the floor. and On the table. On the table, yes. And they're trying to get like a spoon or something in his mouth so he doesn't bite off his tongue. With they're holding seizing. him down. And they're trying to hold him down until eventually just this pop from his chest and blood splats in places. And then finally it explodes open and blood gets everywhere. And we get that famous, oh, God, <laughs> out of Lambert. <laughs> Oh my God. Oh God. It's also famous because very well known. Everyone knew what was going to happen. They knew that John Hurt was inside a rig where there was a different body on him. They just had no idea what was going to happen. Like, <laughs> like what was actually the logistics of it. They just they knew it was going to explode. They had no idea blood was going to get everywhere and on all of them. So those reactions are semi genuine because of that. <laughs> of course, this is the scene we've talked about in the past that was parodied in. Spaceballs and John Hurt comes back, another chest burster pops out of him, and he's like, Oh no, not again. <laughs> oh no, not again. And then it sings, Hello, my baby, hello, my honey. <laughs> it's a really good scene. Oh, it's incredible. And then this thing, Ash tells him, Stop, don't touch it. And then it runs off because mm-hmm. they're going to kill it. Yeah, but again, we don't know. Does it have acid blood? Like, do you attack it? It's a whole new dynamic for something scary that you don't know if you can actually hurt mm-hmm. or should even try. But there's also maybe ulterior motives. Exactly. So they need to find this thing and take care of it. So they rig up some things. Ash makes a, a tracking device that senses micro variations in the atmosphere So you know if something's moving. They get like this electric prod. They get flamethrowers that they rig together. They all go off and they they look for this thing. Ripley goes with Brett and Parker. So the two engineers that don't really like her very much. And they're really tense because they know there's motion. And they know there's... they, They hear a little bit of noise and they get closer and closer. And all of a sudden, Jones pops out of nowhere. Ripley and Parker are like, get it, get it! And... Brett doesn't do anything. Harry Dean Stanton, he just kind of lets it go. And he's like, what? It's the cat. It's the cat. Calm down. And they're like, no, we got to find him and get him because otherwise he's going to throw off our sensors. Mm-hmm. We're going to keep finding him over and over again. Mm-hmm. So now now you, since you let him go, you go look for him. And he goes and looks for him. I love when he goes to look for him because at first he's like, kitty, kitty, kitty. And he's like, enough of that kitty crap. Jones. <laughs> and then he start, and then that doesn't work. So he's like, meow, <laughs> Jonesy, kitty, kitty, meow, meow. Kitty, it's kitty. really cute. <laughs> kitty, 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 kitty crap, Jones, Jonesy, good Jonesy. Meow, meow. He finds that the thing is shedding. Yes, he finds Jones and he finds a skin, like a snake skin. This is made out of like shredded condoms and KY jelly. No joke. (laughs) He also finds water that he doesn't bother to look up and see where it's coming from. Well, no, that's the thing. Okay, so this, we don't know what this is. This place 
is. Maybe it's a coolant area and this is condensation that's just dripping down. But Brett doesn't seem bothered by it. He knows what it is. The water is just water. There are these chains. There's water. Something to do with the engineering stuff that nobody normally goes into except Brett and Parker. He just kind of lets the water fall down on him because it's probably very clean water, relatively speaking. It's this weird moment where he's just like looking up and you see all this water falling down and it lands on his face and he wipes his face and everything like that. And then there's more chain rattling originally the producers were like what is this set it doesn't make any sense why is there water on this spaceship (laughs) and ridley scott's like it's cool (laughs) and we need the the kinetic energy of this scene it can't be still right so we need something to unsettle you and then you get like comfortable in that noise and movement and that's where the bad things happen so he ended up stomping his foot down on the ground and saying, no, we're doing this. <laughs> and then when he's looking for Jones, he, he knows where Jones is. This thing just descends <laughs> and then lands on the ground. And Jones hisses. How they did that, by the way, is they brought a German shepherd onto the set with a screen in between him and the cat. So the cat didn't know he was there. And then they remove the screen, and as soon as the cat saw that German Shepherd, it's like... (laughs) That's how they got it to react that way. Awesome. But the Xenomorph itself just stabs Brett and then takes him away. And we just see, while this is all happening, it's kind of off camera, and we just see Jones, and he's lit by a reflection, and he's just staring at this happening. And it's an incredible shot, Mm -hmm. just of this cat looking. This movie is full of incredible shots that we are not talking about because it would take us hours. Oh, God. See, here's the thing, guys. We're not going to be comprehensive. I sure am talking a lot about this because I love this movie. It is near and dear to my heart. But we would be sitting here talking for six hours if we could talk about everything. Yes. So we're not talking about absolutely everything. Sorry. So now Brett's dead. Ripley and Parker come back to everyone else and tell them, oh, he was carried away by the thing. Were you confused by that at all? Whatever it was, it was was big. You sure took him into the air shaft? Disappeared into one of the cooling ducts. No question is... It's using the end to move around. Because they don't see it. Brett's alone when this happens, and then when they go back, he's like, oh, I was carried away by this thing. It's bigger now, or whatever. Yeah, he says, whatever it was, it was big. Yeah, and so the reason that kind of doesn't make sense is because that was a scene they deleted where they come in and they see it happen. Mm. Now, it wasn't in the movie, ultimately, but... The information's communicated. It's one of the... The movie is absolutely not perfect. We'll get to one shot, which is just horrendous. But it's one of those little Like in the Goonies when Data brings up the octopus. The octopus, yes. Uh-huh. Exactly like that. Yes. The octopus was more scary. Oh, yeah, it was more dangerous. So then Dallas dies. Yeah, Dallas is the next up on the chopping block. They decide that it has to be in the air ducts. That's how it's getting around. And... They're going to use their motion sensors, and Dallas says, nope, none of you guys are doing it. I'm doing it. This is my ship. It's my problem. I'm going to take care of it. And so he takes a flamethrower, and they have their motion sensors, 
and they're watching him and they're talking to him on the radio. And every time they think they got somewhere, oh, it's actually nothing. There's nothing there. Oh, it's over here on this other deck. It's in this other location until eventually it starts getting closer and closer. And he's trying to scramble away from it. He's like, fuck this. I'm out of here. <laughs> and, he, and he goes down the ladder and the way everything is laid out, the continuity of the shots tricks you. Because you see the the motion coming from the left towards the blip that is Dallas on the right. And then he's climbing down these stairs and you get the feeling like to the left of, of Dallas is now behind you. What you don't expect is once he gets to the bottom of those stairs, the alien's on the other side of him. So he's in between you and this alien there. But then you start to see something. Until he turns his flamethrower and it lights up the area and then you just get the alien and it reaches his hands out and cuts away. And Dallas is dead now. I really like that shot. It has these weird webbed fingers. It's kind of silly. Yeah, exactly. Totally. Yes, I totally get it. But it's also iconic. That moment totally makes up for it. You kind of forgive it that (sighs) because the moment's incredible. You're stuck in these air ducts and it comes out of nowhere. You're expecting it to be coming towards you. You're not expecting it to already be there. (laughs) And that's what's so frightening about that. And it's incredible. I absolutely love it. So now Dallas is dead. And this is when Ripley finds out that the crew was expendable. Yeah. So at first, Lambert's like, we got to get out of here. Let's abandon ship. And she's like, well, we don't, we have too many people. We won't fit on the Narcissus. This is one of those movies that has this Hitchcock moment where up until this point, and we know culturally, we know Ripley is the star of the Alien franchise. But when this first came out, you didn't know that. As a matter of fact, Tom Skerritt is he's the listed first. first. Yeah. yeah. And and he's the captain of the ship. And so just like in Psycho, you don't expect him to die halfway through the movie. But he does. And Ripley kind of reveals herself to be the protagonist of the movie after that. And so now she kind of ch- takes charge. And I think that's really cool. And it's something we take for granted now because we have all this cultural baggage that came afterwards. <laughs> but seeing it as alien, the first thing, just blank slate, it's kind of remarkable that they did that. And I think it's pretty cool. But she says, no, we have to actually flush out this alien. But since she's in charge now, she has access to Mother. And now nobody can stop her from reading whatever mother has to say. And so she goes in and talks to mother and she finds out that the actual command is to, they knew there was something there. The command was to bring back the specimen alive and that all other considerations are secondary, including the lives of the people on the ship. When she realizes that she sits back in the seat And it's revealed that Ash is right fucking there next to her. Mm -hmm. And his face is just right there. (laughs) And I forget what he says. What does he say? There is an explanation for this, you know. So she gets really upset. And she's like, Ash, you knew about this. How could you let this happen? You know, and he's like, "This this is the order. This is what I'm supposed to do. And when she starts getting really, really pissed off, and she's gonna do something about this, she's gonna kill this alien, he stops her. And he forcibly stops her and he starts and when she starts fighting back, he starts throwing her around. And then Parker and Lambert show up 
to try to stop this. Like, what the hell's going on here? And he, like, grabs onto Ash, and Ash starts to just, like, wildly be pursuing Ripley. And kind of ignoring the fact that this big dude, because Yafet Koto is like six foot four or something like that. He's a big dude. And he's kind of ignoring and struggling against him. And so at one point, Yafet Koto just decides, I got to take this guy out. And he picks up a, a fire extinguisher and just knocks him on the head. And we saw earlier that he was kind of sweating white. Yeah. And he was acting strangely mm-hmm. when she hit him. But now when Yafet Koto hits him in the head, it knocks his head clean off. <laughs> and then all the circuitry is revealed. And so they end up taking him out. And Ripley sets up his head. And this is where we get the worst shot, or I should say the worst cut in the entire movie. She takes this robot head. Because, <laughs> yes, Ash is a robot. And <laughs> nobody knew. And nobody knew. Nobody knew. Trying to preserve that fact that Ash is a robot, for those of you who didn't already know. Because, again, first time seeing it, you wouldn't have known. And she kind of sets it up on the table and hooks it up to where he can still communicate and they can uh, electro-shock him to wake him back up again. And she kind of sets the head in place. And then it just, like, jump cut to that same shot. But now it is actually Ian Holm with a prosthetic neck sitting, you know, his body's underneath the table. Uh-huh. It's like just cut away to a shot of her kind of manhandling the head instead and then cut back to Ian Holm. But no, just a cut from fake head to real head. And it is, oh, it's so bad. <laughs> then Ian Holm is there and he tells him kind of everything he knows. So yeah, no, this is the, this is the mission. This is what we were told to do. The company wants to bring back this alien and you all are expendable. I can't lie to you about your chances, but you have my sympathies. Yeah. And then she destroys him. Yep. Parker is the one that just sets him on fire. She cuts the power. He sets him on fire. Yeah. So. And then something happens and Lambert gets in the way and is screaming. <laughs> okay, so. I was wondering, was she raped by that alien? That's not accidental. Okay. She wasn't. Okay. But there's a lot of conversation about, like, how sexual the alien is, even before Giger got involved. Giger is notorious for putting vaginas and penises in his artwork. If you look at the whole alien head, it's basically a penis (sighs) with a skull on the base. Even the eggs, when they were first designed, it has, like, a little X or a cross opening. Imagine that, but only one slit. (sighs) That's what it was. And Ridley Scott apparently laughed at him. And he's like, that looks like a vagina. (laughs) (laughs) And so they put two and that, okay, that solves the problem. So, but even before Giger got involved, apparently there's a lot of like, oh, how does it get aboard? Well, maybe it fucks one of them or something like that was kind of the conversations they were having. It was supposed to be like hypersexual and violent. And so those sorts of implications are still throughout, even though nothing like no actual sex happens. The closest we get to that is a face hugger. But anyway, they decide they're going to destroy the Nostromo now because now there's just the three of them. They can get away on the Narcissus and they can hope that they get rescued. Uh, But they just need to get to the escape shuttle, the Narcissus. And they're trying to get all ready and they're gathering all their supplies and they're shutting everything down and preparing to blow everything up when Lambert gets attacked. Yes. And we see the tail wrap around her leg. Mm-hmm. 
that is actually Harry Dean Stanton. They just reused that shot because you couldn't tell who it was. But if you pay attention, she's not wearing those pants. <laughs> but yeah, so it like wraps around her leg. And then all you hear is from Ripley's perspective, she's carrying a flamethrower and she's walking down the halls. She hears this screaming. Yes. So what's actually happening to her? You were supposed to find, I think this is a this is a scene that was never filmed, her like folded up. Because what, what they put in the novelization is that the alien forced her through a vent that was too small for her body. Oh, God. Yeah. So she got all crumpled up and that's how she died. That's why she's screaming as much as she is. Yes. And Parker also gets killed, but it's also kind of off screen. You know, you see him, there are flashes, and then he gets killed. And so the only one left is Ripley. It's just Ripley and this alien, who by all accounts is a male. I know we talk a lot about how alien being female, that comes in aliens with the queen. Right now, this one is a male xenomorph. So we have this fucking xenomorph who apparently either needs to sleep or... (laughs) Yeah, right. I mean, there's descriptions about how it's only alive for a little bit. That's probably one of the reasons why they want to end up using it for a weapon. It's fast. It evolves fast and it dies fast. But apparently, by some accounts, it's it just needs to find a place to die. But by other accounts, it was injured or it was exhausted by Parker, who is Yafet Kodo. Uh, but Ripley doesn't know this. She's just starting all the shutdown procedures and she needs to get off of this ship. So she starts the self-destruct sequence, and then she runs into the alien, and she Mm -hmm. has to run away. She's able to close doors and stuff like that and get away from it, but now she's stuck on the ship, and so she's trying to stop the self-destruct, but it's not going to stop. And so she makes her way- yeah, she fixes the problem. She that, fixes the cooling thing, but she doesn't do it at enough time. Yeah, so she's you like, have 10 well, minutes until the detonation, but only five minutes to change your mind. Yes. Yeah, so there's this five-minute window where it's going to self-destruct. I also like when she's fixing the coolant, she has to pull these things up, and it goes thunk. Yeah, it's great sound effects. Thunk. It's so good. <laughs> Again, the production design in this is just incredible. The sound design, incredible. Everyone just did a bang-up job making this movie. So Mother is the first bitch. Yes. Ripley calls Mother a bitch. Mother! I've turned the cooling unit back on! She manages to make her way around back to, because now she has no choice. She's either going to die in the next five minutes from the self-destruct, get killed by the alien, or get on the Narcissus. And so she makes her way back to the Narcissus, and the alien isn't there anymore. So she's like, okay, great. And so she gets on the Narcissus and launches herself away and barely gets out alive. During their encounter, 
Ripley has her flamethrower and she's firing it at the alien and it just creates this incredible effect because they're real flamethrowers. They're real flamethrowers in Prometheus. When we get there, there's a fun little say, story. There, there seems to be a lot of flamethrowers in the alien franchise. Yep. Hey, it contaminates, it kills things, fire bad. <laughs> so she's on the Narcissus, the Nostromo has exploded and she's getting ready for stasis. And so she strips down. Apparently they wanted to make her completely naked, but... They they knew that they would be banned in certain areas if they did that, so they didn't. As a matter of fact, both Lambert and Ripley had to put white tape over their nipples <laughs> so as to not offend certain cultures uh, so they could get a wider release. While she's getting ready and she's messing with some electronics over by the wall, and it's incredible if you know it's there. It's incredible if you know it's there, but you would be forgiven if you didn't realize it. A hand just drops out and she's freaking out. She's like, ah, and this, this pipe that was there is actually the xenomorph's head. Yes. It's awesome. And she backs up, but this thing is like lethargic and Mm -hmm. it's barely moving, which is why there's the conversation. Is it dying? Has it been injured? And it wants to find a quiet place to heal? Or does it just need a nap time? It just needed a nap time, maybe. (laughs) You know, maybe when it gets worried and it doesn't know what's going on, it just finds a place to hide. Which, you know, stowing aboard a ship, it's a stowaway. That's how it got on board in the first place. Like, maybe that's just part of its nature. But it's also really sluggish, and so something's wrong with it. She gets into her suit and closes the door behind her before it it can attack her, but it's still really slow and she zips into her suit and hits the airlock and the door opens and it gets shoved out into space but before it gets all the way out it grabs onto the side of the door and it's going to pull itself back in and so she has what appears to be a grappling hook of some sort which she shoots it with and it pushes it out into space And that's an extra added layer of complexity. The airlock could have been enough, but no, we get the grappling hook and that pushes the alien out. And as it goes, it gets the line gets taut and it yanks the grappling hook gun away from Ripley. And as it's sliding out and she closes the door, the doors close on the gun. So now the xenomorph is just trailing behind the (laughs) spaceship out in space (laughs) and it pulls itself closer and it latches onto the back and it's right there at the door and she's there too and she can see it so an another added extra layer of complication and it does this sort of like spider walk thing into what it thinks is a point of ingress (laughs) and it climbs in and it's this great visual but we know it's actually one of the engines Mm -hmm. of the ship and so she fires the engine and just Burns this thing to dust. Awesome. And now she's alone on the Narcissus. With Jonesy. With Jonesy, yeah, because she gets the cat in a crate and she she goes back for it at one point. And so now Jonesy is there. So Jonesy survived all of this. And they're going to be in stasis together until hopefully somebody finds them, which is how Aliens starts. And she records a final log entry. Yeah. Saying she's the last living member of the Nostromo. Final report of the commercial starship Nostromo. Third officer reporting. The other members of the crew. Kane, Lambert, Parker, Brett, Ash, and Captain Dallas are dead. 
cargo and ship destroyed. I should reach the frontier in about six weeks. With a little luck, the network will pick me up. This is Ripley, last survivor of the Nostromo. Signing off. A little bit about the xenomorph itself. Ron Cobb was the one who said it should bleed acid because Dan O'Bannon, the writer, was like, I don't know why they don't just shoot this thing, honestly. <laughs> like, is it because they're miners and they don't have guns? No, I mean, they have flamethrowers. They have all this stuff. They could attack it. Why don't they attack the face hugger or whatever else in there? And he's like, well, what if... You know, its ultimate defense was that if you shoot it, it damages the ship, uh, which is Yafet Kodo has that line that kind of punctuates that. Mm-hmm. Also, the, the the front of the skull, you may or may not notice, is actually molded out of a real human skull. Some people say that the, that the actual head has the front of a real human skull on it. Mm-hmm. No, the skull isn't actually part of the xenomorph face. It's a it's a cast of an actual human skull, but it's not the human skull itself. Okay. <laughs> the whole thing is on screen for about four minutes. Really? Yeah. And it doesn't actually appear in its xenomorph form until an hour into the movie. That's true. They were originally going to get animatronics. Oh, thank God. Because they didn't want it to look like a man in a suit. Well, it kind of does. It kind of does. But it's the best they could do because apparently the casting director was in like a pub or something in London. And he saw this. He's a graphic artist, Balahi Badejo. And he's like, you, you are my alien. And so they trained him up. They gave him mime classes. They taught him some Tai Chi. So <laughs> there are moments like when it approaches Lambert where it does this uh-huh. hand thing, this wavy Another sort of thing, thing. And it's like yeah. floating. It looks a little cheesy, but it's little bit. it's also now iconic. Right. Just like the moment. Right. Dallas and the vents. Yeah. So it, it it is a little bit cheesy. But yeah, they wanted to move gracefully and almost feel a little bit like an insect. But because he had this giant tail on, he couldn't sit down. <laughs> so they had this, like, basically a sex swing. <laughs> well, I mean, what amounts to a sex swing that he would have to sit in to sit down in between shots. <laughs> the music is done by Jerry Goldsmith, who was apparently very angry because the editor ended up putting a lot of his older stuff in it. Like, not his completed stuff because they liked the way the older stuff sounded. And even some stuff that he made for other movies that they never actually ended up using. That was a decision that Scott and the editor, Terry Rawlings, made. And by that point, it's out of Goldsmith's hands, right? He doesn't get to make any of those decisions. He just makes the music. Mm -hmm. And so apparently he was really, really pissed off about this. And he hated them. <laughs> oh. Jerry Goldsmith actually died in 2004, but he's done a lot of scores. He has scored six movies so far that we've watched on this show. Do tell. In order, mm. The Omen. Okay. Alien. Mm-hmm. Poltergeist. Really? The Secret of Nim. Huh. Gremlins. Oh, my gosh. And The Burbs. He also did... Planet of the Apes, Patton, which is incredibly famous, 
uh, Logan's Run, Chinatown. He did almost all of the Star Trek themes. Like he scored Star Trek, the motion picture. He created the next generation theme that was used on the TV show. Uh, he did Total Recall. He did all the Rambo movies. He did L.A. Confidential. So dude is, uh, or at least was, prolific. Mm-hmm. There's some deleted scenes, a lot of minor stuff. Like they 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 listen to the signal. Lambert slaps Ripley when they get back inside because Ripley was going to leave them outside the airlock. Wow. She's pissed her and she slaps her. They left that out. Yeah. There's that sh- that scene that I told you about where Ripley and Parker see Brett get lifted off the ground. And that's how they know it carried them away. Mm-hmm. It carried him away and that it got bigger. Also, this is Whatever a big it was, one. It was big. Yeah. This is also a big one, which is kind of famous, even though it never actually made it into the final film. Uh, and that is that Ripley at one point finds both Dallas and Brett and they're in cocoons and Brett's dead, but Dallas is still alive and he begs her to kill him. And so she burns him up with a flamethrower that she has on her. They ended up doing that in alien resurrection instead in 97. It's also in Duke Nukem 3D. When he finds people cocooned up, they'll beg him to kill them. It's also in The Mist. Yes. Yes. Very much so. There are a bunch of scenes that were unfilmed. Like, for instance, a sex scene. They didn't film a sex scene between Ripley and Dallas. That was supposed to accentuate, hey, they're out in space for a very long time, so they just have casual sex. They ended up putting that in Prometheus, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Okay. So, I mean, I just have a few more lightning round stuff. Kelsey, do you have anything else? No, no. So first of all, this movie started the trend of marketing R-rated properties to children, (laughs) which was a big thing in my childhood. (laughs) They started making figures of the xenomorph and the characters and stuff like that, and they Mm -hmm. did very, very well. And so they went on to other movies like RoboCop and Rambo. (laughs) I remember RoboCop being fucking huge. Rambo had a children's cartoon. Like What? Yes. Wow. No, it was huge for kids. And they start out as these R-rated properties. So this was the kind of the first thing to actually do that. Partially because they looked at Star Wars and how good Star Wars was doing with its figure line. (laughs) And so they're like, well, what if we just did toys? (laughs) The movie's not for kids. It's like, well, if we make the designs interesting enough, the kids don't have to have seen the movie to like the toys. (laughs) That's kind of what they went with. Ridley Scott did an interview around the time that Prometheus came out. This movie takes place far after Blade Runner takes place because Blade Runner takes place this year, 2019, Mm -hmm. whereas Alien takes place in 2122. Mm -hmm. Uh, But his idea is that, hey, when they get home and they go to, say, like Los Angeles or wherever, Mm -hmm. this is what it looks like. The Blade Runner universe. I'm good. I don't I don't need them to be together. Yeah, I'm good. (laughs) I totally get that. This is also the inspiration for the famous term, the Bechdel test. Have you heard of the Bechdel test? Yes. Okay, so Alison Bechdel is a comic strip writer. She wrote a comic strip in the 80s called Dykes to Watch Out For. And in 1985, she had characters talking, and one of them says, well, to decide on a movie, it needs for me to watch it, it needs to pass this test. There are three criteria for someone to pass this Bechdel test, as it would eventually later be called. The movie must have, one, 
at least two female characters who two have a conversation with each other that three isn't about one of the male characters. Now we call it the Bechdel test. Now it's not saying that, oh, a movie is only good if it passes the Bechdel test. It's not saying that, oh, there's gender equality if it passes the Bechdel test. That's not at all what it's saying. Interestingly, though, only about half of all movies actually pass this test. Mm -hmm. And it's a very low bar. Mm -hmm. There are resources out there that actually catalog major films that come out and whether or not they pass this test. <laughs> and and the average is about 50%. Wow. Now, the what this has to do with Alien is that in the strip where this test was first published or was first mentioned, the character who talks about it says, you know, somebody makes a comment about it. And then that character says, yeah, the last movie I got to see was Alien. Because Alien passes the Bechdel test because Lambert and Ripley talk to each other. Mm. And not about and any not of the about male the other characters. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. This is actually really, really cool, and I absolutely love these titles. So, as you know, movies in other countries often get different titles because they they don't translate properly or what have you. In Hungarian the name of this movie translates back into English as the eighth passenger is the death, which is kind of cool. You know, the eighth passenger is death, but they say the death like it's a it's a specific aspect. It's a being that is death. So they have come to call the alien instead of the alien or the xenomorph. They call it the death. Ah. So every other alien movie has death in the title now in Hungarian. So there's. <laughs> Aliens, which is the name of the planet Death, uh, Alien 3, the final solution, Death, and Alien Resurrection is the resurrection of Death. It's <laughs> really interesting, actually. Yeah, even to the point where Alien versus Predator is called the Death against the Predator, <laughs> which, is, which I think is really cool. In Prometheus, they actually use the term Death twice in sort of a poetic way. And I like the fact that when you think about it, death is the xenomorph. Mm -hmm. And finally, I have, if you listen to the commentary they do on this movie, Red Letter Media does a does a commentary for all the movies in the franchise. And the, in the one they have on Alien, Mike breaks down it kind of like in a couch tomato sort of way. If you if you watch Couch Tomato on YouTube, uh, where he says, oh, this movie is exactly like this other completely unrelated movie. And he lists the ways they're similar. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of funny. Well, Mike does that with Alien and Aliens. He says these are the same exact movie, just in different genres. And he, he pinpoints point by point how Aliens just repeats beats from Alien over okay again. Yeah. No, no, it's totally fine. I love aliens. Mm -hmm. And I kind of like that there is this sort of standard. But all those people that hated Force Awakens because it just redid the, the beats, I wonder if they really like aliens. That's a question I would ask them. <laughs> well, Kelsey, I've tried to restrain myself. You did a good job. Uh, we didn't go on for two hours like we have in the past. This will right. probably end up being actually only about a little over an hour, I would assume, in the final edit. By the time we're at this point. Okay. With that said, Kelsey, what do you think this movie has on Rotten Tomatoes? 98. Has a 97. There you go. A modern classic, Alien blends science fiction, horror, and bleak poetry into a seamless whole. A Metacritic, so average rating of 89 with no cinema score. 
Pauline Kale, who's a famous reviewer, said of the movie at the time, it reached out, grabbed you, and squeezed your stomach. It was more gripping than entertaining, but a lot of people didn't mind. Mm -hmm. They thought it was terrific because at least they'd felt something. They'd been brutalized. Wow. Ebert reviewed it in 2003. He does that often, or he at least did that often. He would go back and he'd review movies he didn't review in the past. Okay. And he gave it four out of four stars. And he said a recent version of this story would have hurtled toward the part where the alien jumps on the crew members. Today's slasher movies in the sci-fi genre and elsewhere are all payoff and no buildup. Consider the wretched remake of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is interesting because... The original Texas Chainsaw Massacre was a slasher influence on this one. <laughs> Consider the wretched remake of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which cheats its audience out of an explanation, an introduction of the Chainsaw family, and even a proper ending. It isn't the slashing that we enjoy. It's the waiting for the slashing. <laughs> so kind of an admonition of jump scares in that. Do you think this movie is overrated or underrated? Just slightly overrated. How slightly, pray? I'm going to give it a 95. 95. All right. I'll accept that. 95 is pretty good. I think you know what I'm going to give it. Yeah. Hell yeah, I'm giving it 100. I think this movie is excellent. I think it's brilliantly shot. The acting is stunning. Yeah, everything is very naturalistic about the acting. It feels like these are real conversations that are happening. These are real people that, you know, maybe have differences or things they like about each other. It feels like real people. Yes. It's excellent movie. I just need it to be a little more exciting. <laughs> yes. Well, like I say, this is very patient. Like Ebert says, it's about the buildup. Which is fine. But when you've seen it before. Yeah. I can understand. And then when you see aliens, which you don't really get that. There's a lot of action in aliens. Yes. So this doesn't really have that. It's something completely different. In the same way that I think like we said when we talked about Terminator, the difference between Terminator 1 and T2. You know, they're very similar in that respect. Where T1 was more about the buildup than it was about the actual action. And I like that because Cameron with Terminator – ironically, because he did Aliens, uh, and Scott with this movie, and even Spielberg with Jaws, and Jaws is very much out of necessity, because the shark looked like shit. <laughs> they, they did absolutely expert jobs, in my opinion, of maintaining tension, and that's what a real patient film is does for me. That's why I like patient films. I don't like boring films. It's that extra bit that when you're patient the whole time, can you maintain that tension throughout? If you can't, it's boring. You, having been kind of desensitized to that, maybe feel that it's a little boring. And I totally get that. 100% I get that. And I get that out there in the audience if you feel that's the same way. But I could watch the movie again now. Right now. I don't care. It's that good. But we're not going to. Instead, we're going to watch 2012's Prometheus. Before we get there, though, Kelsey, horror trivia. How many murderers are revealed at the end of the movie Scream? Scream? 
Mm-hmm. Two. That's correct. Yeah, that was easy. Yep. Here's another question you won't know the answer to. Before Alien went into production, what was the proposed title of the film? It's kind of semi-famous that it was called this. Dan O'Bannon originally titled it this. I don't know. So Dan O'Bannon originally worked on a movie called Dark Star. And he decided he wanted to write his own sci-fi movie and have it be a horror. And so he named this as a placeholder name, Star Beast. And then they just called it Alien. Part of the reason why they decided on Alien was for its simplicity, which would also reflect kind of the simplicity of the movie itself. But also because... There weren't any other alien movies, surprisingly. <laughs> well, okay, I guess we're alien now. That's why they called it alien. So, with that said, let's talk about the sort of pre-boot 2012's Prometheus. Again, directed by Ridley Scott, this time written by John Spates and Damon Lindelof. Again, based on elements created by Dan O'Bannon and Ron Shusset. Starring Numi Rapace, Logan Marshall Green... Michael Fassbender, Charlize Theron, Idris Elba, Guy Pierce, Sean Harris, Rafe Spall, Benedict Wong, and a cameo by pod fave Patrick Wilson. <laughs> what is Prometheus about, Kelsey? Prior to the occurrences in the film Alien, two scientists go into space to try and find our makers. Yeah. Originally... Ridley Scott's idea was to kind of do do a prequel to the movie, but also not. It was very vague, and everyone was really, really confused about this movie, what it was supposed to be. He said, no, this isn't actually a prequel, but it kind of is. It totally is. It starts a whole, well, see, so after further development, they said, no, we are making it a prequel. It is a prequel now. But that also made it to where there are some inconsistencies. So it's more like a pre-boot, as I call it. It it kind of reboots the franchise, but it also is a prequel. A little bit harder prequel than what it was originally. And how it got there was Ridley Scott had this kind of starting script idea, this treatment. And he gave it to Lindelof and said, what do you think? Lindelof, famous for being the showrunner on Lost... He also produces Watchmen on HBO right now. He's a follower of the J.J. Abrams mystery box philosophy of making things. And this is really when that started getting to a peak and people were starting to call bullshit on it. Like, stop saying vague stuff. Give us actual answers. Don't just tease us the whole time. If you don't know the answer to something, don't write about it. (laughs) Effectively. And so he got a little bit better about that. Uh, He did The Leftovers, which was superb. Ironically, when it did give us answers, Kelsey wasn't a fan. It didn't give us answers. It did not give us any definitive Well, it told us what happened, at least. It gave us ideas. Right. But like in Lost, when Lost had like the smoke monster, do you know what the smoke monster was? What it actually was, not just that it was a smoke monster? A demon? J.J. Abrams didn't know either. He just did it. And Lindelof kind of took over the show and he did a lot of the same stuff. They just do things and they go, Hey, wouldn't this be weird? We can figure out what the reason is later. And it's really fucking annoying. <laughs> so at least in leftovers, they told you just enough answers to keep me satisfied. I really, really liked that. But anyway, the point is 
Lindelof is kind of notorious for that, and he dips into it here. He's gotten better at that with time. Leftovers is better than that. We just started watching Watchmen, so hopefully it'll be better. I know Watchmen is supposed to be very, very weird, but it's also supposed to be good. It's kind of what we go to Lindelof for. Charlize Theron, or Theron, I don't know how you pronounce her name, whatever. I go by Charlize Theron, but it's the real pronunciation pronunciation of my last name is Theron. Which is really hard for people to say. Yeah. Okay. She was originally cast in the role that Numi Rapace has of Elizabeth Shaw. She couldn't do it because of her schedule. And then her schedule cleared up. And by the time she got back, they had already cast Numi Rapace. So she took the role of Meredith Vickers. Apparently, Scott, Ridley Scott, had seen Girl with the Dragon Tattoo multiple times. Like the original one that Numi Rapace was in. And loved it a whole lot. And he loved her in it, and he really wanted to work with her at some point. So when he happened to be there, when she was meeting with uh, some producer, he was like, "You, you're our Shaw. I get to work with you now." And so she <laughs> she took that she took that job. A little bit about Prometheus. Obviously, that's the name of the movie, but as Scott puts it, it's the story of creation, the gods, and the man who stood against them. So Prometheus is a titan. He gave fire to humans and the gods punished him for doing that. They chained him to a rock and an eagle every single day would eat his liver and every single day it would grow back. And this would happen every day over and over and over again. Uh, Hercules ends up freeing him. It's one of his 12 tasks that he has to complete. And we think that Prometheus, the word means, has something to do with the Greek word for forethinker. Um, or maybe it's this ancient word for thief. We don't actually know. But that's where all this comes from. You can see why it relates to the themes of this movie about stealing fire from the gods. And now the humans have a power that only the gods were supposed to have. In this case, creating life. Mm-hmm. Before the movie came out, because they had Guy Pierce. They had him playing a young Peter Wayland, who's the Wayland half of Wayland yutani doing sort of futuristic TED Talks. And they were branded as such. And I remember watching one of those before the movie came out. It was very cool. Yeah, no, it's an awesome idea. And they also did a commercial about the David 8 android. That is what Michael Fassbender is. We know straight from the beginning that he's an android. Uh, and so Lindelof and Ridley made those themselves directly, specifically for this movie. So that was pretty cool. Uh, they were directed by Luke Scott. This is the other thing when I said he'd come back in Prometheus. Ridley Scott's son, who did Morgan, directed those things. The movie is, same thing, basically $4 to rent and $15 to buy virtually everywhere. We rented it. Because we'd seen it before. I'd seen it twice. This was my third time seeing it. You're like, I, I don't need to buy this movie for $15. Should people watch it, though? I think so. Yeah. I think this movie got a lot of flack, and for good reason. <laughs> but it also, I feel, led to people dismissing it. It's not a bad movie. It's actually pretty dang good. Yeah. It's just... It has the mystery box problem. A lot of things don't make sense or inconsistent. It's not clear exactly how it ties into the Alien franchise as a whole. There's some things that we can comment on, like the Prometheus school of running away from things. (laughs) 
But, I mean, remember, Alien had the moment it had mm-hmm. the ballet alien moment mm-hmm. it had the cut with ash's head mm-hmm. alien is not perfect even though i gave it my highest score possible <laughs> it's not an indication that it is a perfect movie uh, and neither is this no it's not by any stretch as good as alien or aliens right but it's definitely worth watching yeah so you can take our advice or leave it but when we get back we will talk about 2012's prometheus what they're smiling. I think they want us to come and find them. It's a star map. No, not a map. An invitation. For who? Prometheus has landed. If you're going down there, you're going to die. From the director of Alien, Blade Runner, and Gladiator, this summer, the search for our beginning could lead to our end. Prometheus. This film is not yet rated. All right, Kelsey. Get us started. How does Prometheus begin? We open on our main character and her husband. Actually, it starts with the title card again, just like in the first Alien movie. Except this time, it's much faster. So maybe that's kind of indicative of a tone difference between these two movies. Also, it has curves because there's like an S and a U, and an O, and so it doesn't quite work, but they still try to force it in there, which is kind of a metaphor for this whole movie. But you see, it's like poetry, it rhymes. <laughs> Again, it's like poetry, so if they rhyme, mm-hmm. every stanza kind of rhymes with the last one. Hopefully it'll work. We also get the theme for Prometheus. I couldn't recite it to you right now, but I actually really like it. I did not like it. It was far too noticeable. It is. It very much is. You notice it throughout But it was enjoyable, film. I would say. It, it, that, I, but you're right. It, it does stand out way too much. Like, if you asked me to hum the theme of Alien, I could not do it. And I love that movie. Uh, I just couldn't do it to this one because, you know, it's been a couple days uh, since we actually saw it. But Mark Streitenfeld apparently... He, he wrote all the music, and then he reversed it, and he had the orchestra play it backwards, and then they reversed the recording, so it sounded weird. But you couldn't tell. <laughs> you could not tell. But yes, then we get our main characters. Shaw and... Holloway. Holloway. Which I'm pretty sure they're supposed to be married, but then why is her last name Shaw? I think they're just doing it. But they want to have a kid? Yeah. Okay. It's the future, man. It is the future. So they are... We missed We missed the beginning of time, where the engineer lands on what we assume is Earth. Oh, that's right. Space monks. <laughs> yes, the space monks. And he drinks this black goop, which decomposes his body and spreads his DNA throughout the planet, thus seeding the planet with life. They terraform. But they also mention terraforming later on in the movie, which is an actual process that they undertake. So maybe first they they literally terraform the planet and then they seed it with life. Uh, And so we're at the point where they're seeding the planet with life and he breaks down and he falls into the water. Which is apparently something they do everywhere. Yeah. 
I guess they go to, to multiple planets, but they absolutely did it here on Earth as well. Then it's thousands and thousands of years later in the year 2089 in Scotland, and we get Shaw and Holloway. Who are archaeologists. Yes. And who have been studying ancient civilizations. And they have found something that they have found all over the world from all different types of civilizations from different time periods. Yeah. Where it's like four stars. Or a number of stars that that form a particular arrangement. And they're like, there's only one place in the entire galaxy that has that arrangement of stars. And Um, it's too far away for them to have seen. Which is Here's the problem with that, though, is that, like, like that arrangement of stars is in two dimensions. And stars aren't in two dimensions. They're in three dimensions. So there's zero possibility that this is the only pattern of stars that looks like that in the entire galaxy. Because you can look at them from any direction in any angle. Like, you could make another organization of stars look like that if you wanted to. But we're just going with it. That's what's happening now. So that was in 2089. Jump forward four years to 2093. Yes. And they are now on a ship. The Prometheus. Yes. And we get to see Michael Fassbender just kind of on the ship alone. This was apparently potentially going to be used for other alien movies, like even with Ash in the first one, but they didn't want to give up that he was unusual in any way too early on so they had him in cryosleep with the others uh in in the first alien but in this one they want you to know right away david's a robot they don't hide that fact at all that's why he's riding a bicycle and shooting impossible shots in basketball uh, at the same time and yet he's funny enough dyeing his hair which is a fun character moment but what, does his hair actually grow? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Because he's kind of obsessed with Peter O'Toole in Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, he's watching the movie Lawrence of Arabia at one point. I'm sure he's watched it several times, and Peter O'Toole has his blonde hair in that. And that's what he's trying to make his hair look like. And we also get a reference to... Lawrence of Arabia by Wayland later. So it's almost like he knows his creator, his father likes Lawrence of Arabia. So now he becomes obsessed with it. And he kind of tries, he doesn't go full Peter O'Toole, Peter O'Toole with his <laughs> accent or anything, but he does have that sort of tonality. He dyes his hair and it's like he goes, he dives all in, but it also kind of tells us that as a robot, he has desires and passions. They might not be as inflammatory as humans, but they exist. What else do we see him do? We also eats and drinks. Yep. He doesn't have to, but he does. What does that do to his innards? Can he process food? Maybe. If so, why? I don't know. Calories are just burned food. It's the energy that that, uh, breaking down food creates. So theoretically, he could run off calories. We also see him learning languages, which... That Why can't relate. he just download them? Well, because it's it's not that he's learning them, it's that he's analyzing them. He's trying to analyze all these ancient languages 
uh, in order to understand kind of language itself. And then the further back the language goes, the closer it is to the engineers. And maybe that will help him understand whatever language it is that they use if they ever finally meet the engineers. Yeah, but he's a computer. Yeah, but he's a he's a biological computer. He's a living being. They did it in the fucking Matrix. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong. We also see him watching Shaw's dreams. He has kind of a crush on Shaw. And what is one of her dreams, like the dream that we see? I could have sworn we got more than one in the original cut. We see it more than once. We do? Yeah. Oh, I must have missed it. There's a flashback to it. We see Patrick Wilson. Yeah. Who plays her dad. And we kind of get a little bit of backstory here. Like, she grew up on Earth, and her father was basically, what do you call that, those people who go and help? He was like Doctors Without Borders. Yes. And he was in, like, Africa or something, trying to help with Ebola? Yes, because that's what he eventually dies of. Yes, but she notices that there are people who don't want his help. And she says, why aren't you helping them? And he's like, because they don't want me to. Their religion tells them that I'm evil or something like that. They're having, like, a funeral ceremony or something, and it's different than what they do. And it's like, well, their beliefs are different than ours. That leads her to ask questions like what is the afterlife? What can we believe is actually true? If their beliefs are different than ours, what makes ours real like and not theirs? And he tries to say, well, it's all kind of the same thing, just from different perspectives, right? Where do they go? Everyone has their own word. Heaven. Paradise. Whatever it's called. Someplace beautiful. How do you know it's beautiful? Because that's what I choose to believe. What do you believe? Yeah, because she's like religious, which they kind of try to interweave in the story, but it really doesn't have any effect on anything. So yeah, cares? I mean, they're, what they're trying to do is uh, talk about what is life. What is religion when you know that there's extraterrestrial life? You know, stuff like that. There's even implications that the engineers not only seeded this planet, but came back to try to guide us morally, and that Jesus was an engineer. And then we killed Jesus. <laughs> and that has ramifications. But it's just this pleasant memory she has with her dad about how he taught her about, you know religion and that sort of thing. And she does carry around this cross with her that belonged to her dad or her dad gave her that we see throughout the movie. And we'll get reference to it later. But then then eventually everyone is woken up. Yes, and then we get to meet all of our characters. And boy, are they a cast of characters. Yes. We have Charlize Theron, who is the strict blonde woman who doesn't take anybody's shit. And then we have the festive captain, who even wants to have a Christmas tree and likes to have sex. And then we've got the sick, fragile scientist. Okay, so. Of Shaw, who wakes up and starts vomiting. Charlize Theron is Vickers. Idris Elba is Yannick. Logan Marshall Green is Holloway, who is Shaw's significant other. Shaw's played by Numi Rapace. There's Fifield, who is Sean Harris, who you probably recognize from the more recent Mission Impossible movies. Uh, Rafe Spall is Milburn. 
who we've seen a lot of, we've talked about on the show in the past. Kelsey, you w- saw him in a movie without me. Do you know what movie that is? Milburn, the biologist. He's in Ritual. Oh! He's one of the two detective guys in Hot Fuzz, too. And so He's anyway. the goofy nerd scientist. We also have the abrasive redhead. Yeah, that's Fifield. We also have the shifty robot and the cocky husband. <laughs> Yes, the cocky husband is Logan Marshall Green as Holloway, and the shifty robot is Michael Fassbender as David. Uh, We get Benedict Wong, who you might know from Doctor Strange, among other things. He's Ravel. There's uh, Katie Dickey as Ford, who is the mom who breastfeeds her. Oh, yeah. Preteen child. In Game of Thrones. In Game of Thrones. What did we see her on in, in the show? I feel like we've talked about her in the past. She was in The Witch. Yes, 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 yes. She's the mom in The Witch. There's Emin Elliot, who plays Chance, who is another pilot along with Ravel. There are just far too many people in this movie. <laughs> because it's a planned expedition, right? And, and they work kind of merc- mercenarily. But speaking of that, there are more characters without names or identities in this movie than there are total characters in the original. (laughs) There are eight that are just referred to in the credits as mercenary or mechanic. And that doesn't include the extras at the archaeological dig or any of the engineers that we see in the cam footage. Like, there's just tons and tons of people in this movie. Way more. So you don't get that same claustrophobia that you feel, that intimacy that you get from the first Alien movie. Mm -hmm. And I say that's, it's, they didn't limit themselves in that way, and they probably should have. I agree. But anyway, we meet everyone and they get their briefing. They're getting their briefing when they're arriving at their destination, because that was part of the deal. You get paid a lot of money to come and do this thing. We're going off into space. You're going to be gone for years, and we are not telling you what's going on until you get there. So they get there, and they get the briefing from Wayland himself. From a hologram of him. Guy Pierce, and he has a puppy, too. There's a dog? Yeah, there's a puppy. I don't remember there being a dog. Yeah. We have this hologram, and it's so... it's it, One of the biggest problems with this film is kind of shown to you right away, but you don't understand it at first. And what I mean is they show you right off the bat that he is a robot. Yeah. And you become aware that this film is all about making everything incredibly obvious. They do not want their their audience thinking too hard about anything which is funny because this well, movie becomes yeah. super convoluted no it's but- it's not that they don't want anything to be like any of the literal plot elements to be obfuscated because they want your mind thinking about the metaphorical implications that's where they want your mind but so i mean here's wayland and in his speech to these people telling mm-hmm. them about what they're going to do on this planet, he finds it necessary to explain that David is the closest thing he'll ever get to a son. Yeah. He always wanted a son, but he didn't get one. He has a stupid daughter, which no one knows is his daughter. And But, oh, it's too and, bad. But we get a close-up of her fuming when he says that. But and, too yeah. bad that David is soulless. And it's just like, yeah. oh, my God. You'll never have a soul. I guess <laughs> I guess they really wanted us to understand who Charlize Theron and David were from yeah. the 
get-go. Uh-huh. She's the side-saddled daughter that nobody cares about, and he is this bright and beaming boy. Unfortunately, he's a fucking Pinocchio. Like, okay, I yeah. guess <laughs> their entire character arc is right there for me to see. Uh-huh. There's a man sitting with you today. His name is David, and he is the closest thing to a son I will ever have. Unfortunately, he is he's not human. He will never grow old, and he will never die. And yet he is unable to appreciate these remarkable gifts. For that would require the one thing that David will never have. A soul. Now, why do we see Wayland in a hologram? Because everyone thinks he's dead. Spoilers, he's not. <laughs> but everyone thinks he is. Everyone thinks he died between funding this expedition and the launching of the expedition. So he's been dead for like two years at least. Because that's how long it's taken them to get there, I think. And where is there? LV-223. It is not LV-426. So this is not the same planet. But it's close. It's in the same, like, area, which is why it's LV. But instead of 426, it's 223. So nearby, which is important. He also explains that the reason that they're on the Prometheus is because Prometheus stole the ability to create life from the gods, or was it fire? Prometheus was, no, it was a fire. Yeah, P Prometheus was a titan who gave humans fire. I was thinking of the guy of Maui from Moana. Yeah, who gave no, them but creation. It, <laughs> it's, the, it's the same kind of thing, right? The idea is is that this titan was kicked out of Olympus by the gods because he gave something to humans which only gods were supposed to have. And so the metaphor is the engineers as gods created life and then humans went and created life of their own. And it's 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 this big thing that comes up later when Shaw is like am I worthless then because I can't have children. <laughs> like it's just really obnoxious. Like, I understand. Listen, women out there, if you want to be able to have children and you can't, that really sucks. And I, I can understand that must be very, very difficult for you. But it's very heavy-handed in this movie about creating life and how important the ability to create life is and how humans become gods when they create life. Well, I do... I really like the moment between David and Holloway because Holloway hates David. We don't really understand why. He just he just hates robots, apparently. And, like, because he antagonizes him the whole film. And there's this one little moment where David asks him, why do you want to meet these engineers? And he says, I want to ask them why they created us. And he goes, well, why did you create me? And Holloway, without even thinking, says, because we could. And he's like... You could understand why that would be disappointing to hear. Would that be disappointing if they said that to you? And I don't really give a fuck about Holloway and his whole deal, but it's a wonderful moment of just like, why do you think they created you? If you create life simply because you can, why the fuck do you think they did it? Right. Because they can. Like, if there is a God... You're a whole, like, why did you make this? Oh, there's this? a purpose for everything. Because yeah. he fucking could. Yeah, uh-huh. Because he got bored. <laughs> yeah, and and that's kind why of what Why do we do saying. anything in life? And so he says, you can understand why that would be disappointing to hear. And, and Holloway says, 
well, good thing you're incapable of being disappointed. And David's like, yeah, good thing. And it's like, yeah, I don't think that David is disappointed, but he is making calculations in his head. And he's like, oh, okay, well, Holloway is expendable now because he's a big dickhead. (laughs) (laughs) Like, it's not like he's angry at Holloway, but he he's making calculations that Holloway is not valuable. Anyway, that's way later. So they land. And they get all suited up in a big group of people. Hold on, hold on. Okay. We do learn some stuff. We learn that even though Wayland said that Shaw and Holloway are in charge. Yeah. Charlize Theron makes it known to them very quickly that no, no, no. I'm in charge of you. Yeah. You may be in charge of other things. Of the expedition. But overall, I'm the one who's in charge. There's another fun conversation here between David and Holloway again, where I can't remember something about the fact that it's a thesis. I don't know. I don't remember exactly the conversation. Oh, that's... but I do love it when David's like, "Yes, that's why it's a thesis." Yeah, uh huh. Because yeah, Holloway's that... like, "I'm fucking right," and he's like, "Uh, you made a thesis." <laughs> yeah, you don't know that you're right. Uh, that's why they call it a thesis. Or theory, yeah. sorry, a theory. theory. Yeah, uh-huh. I can't remember what they're talking about, though. Yeah, well, we'll play it here. How are your lessons going, David? I spent two years deconstructing dozens of ancient languages to their roots. I'm confident I can communicate with them, provided your thesis is correct. <laughs> provided it's correct, it's good. That's why they call it a thesis, doctor. I really like that conversation. So they go to land on LV-223, and there's a big storm, and it's fucking everything up, but they break through the storm, and then they see what looks like maybe a pyramid or some sort of formation. They can't decide if it's geological or not, but there's this big valley, and then they're like what look like the Nazca lines in Peru. You know, the lines that are like geometrically, they're very clean and they make shapes like there's a bird and there's a giant or whatever. They're like, oh, my God, is that natural? And Holloway says that that's where we're landing. It's like a runway. Nature doesn't paint in straight lines or whatever it is that he says. This is something that's manufactured. And so this is where we're going to land. Then they see the man-made ship as well. Yeah, then they see this this giant thing. They don't know it's a ship yet, though. Oh, and it looks a lot like the one in. It's the croissant. In Alien, it's yeah. just they're not the same planet, so they are not the same ship. <laughs> and they're getting all suited up, and Holloway says to David, again, they have another great conversation between the two of them. He says, David, why are you wearing a suit? David says, I was designed like this because you are more comfortable interacting with your own kind. If I didn't wear a suit, it would defeat the purpose. <laughs> and Holloway says, they're making you guys pretty close, huh? And David says, not too close, I hope. (laughs) And it's like supposed to be kind of comforting. Don't worry. Robots aren't going to replace humans. But also, I don't want to be human. But he also kind of does. Yeah. But he thinks humans are flawed. I think he just doesn't want to be like Holloway. Yes. uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, So they go to this pyramid and they, they get inside, which is far enough away that they have to ride these little buggies. I thought they went inside the the ship. No. Well, because that's the thing. The ship's underground. They're, the The ship isn't outside. It's just kind of shaped like that. It's oh. got this almost complete circle shape, and then there's like this pyramid in the middle. Later on, the ground opens up and the ship comes out. 
But anyway, they go to this pyramid. They have to take this buggy to it. And they go inside, and again, there's, like, water falling from the ceiling, from the sky or whatever. And they're doing the analysis, and it's breathable air. And so Holloway takes off his helmet, and everyone's like, no, 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 don't. And he's like, "Ah, it's breathable air. It's totally fine. They get further inside after everyone takes off their helmets. And they see this holographic footage. It's like like real-time security footage, real space security footage where you can see where the people were in real space as holograms running down hallways and stuff like that. And this is all David figuring all this stuff out and not waiting to see if they want him to do these things. He's just pushing buttons and figuring shit out. And they're like, what the fuck are you doing? Uh Yeah. He's the reason that they see this hologram. Meanwhile, Fifield sends his, his, what does he call them? I don't remember. His dogs, his puppies, his boys or whatever. Something. He sends these little flying sensors out and they map all the different passageways in three-dimensional space and send that data back to the Prometheus. Because he's the geologist. He's interested in the caves and the rocks and stuff like that. Interesting that he's the one that gets lost later. Yeah. I don't know if that's intentional or not, but it's really idiotic. rocks. Yes. (laughs) I love rocks. Look. I'm just a geologist. I like rocks. I love rocks. Now it's clear you two don't give a shit about rocks, but what you do seem to care about is gigantic dead bodies. And I don't really have anything to contribute in the gigantic dead body arena! I'm gonna go back to the ship, if you don't mind. They find a dead body that looks like one of the things that's in the security footage. And... In the security footage we saw, it had the face, the head of the space jockey from the original movie. And they find it later with its head gone and its shoulders pressed up against a wall. And they realize, okay, this is a door. David, can you open it? And they just want him to find out. But he actually does. He just opens the door and like, oh, shit, we didn't know. But yeah, this this he's been decapitated by the door. They were running from something and then he was decapitated. And they open this chamber that has this giant human-looking face. And this is when Charlize Theron, who's been watching through a camera... She's like, well, goddammit. <laughs> they were right. They were right, yeah. And the captain goes, what, did you want them to be wrong? Maybe. Yeah, she did. Yeah. But there's also all these little cylinders. There's not eggs in this. There are these, uh, I don't want to say man-made, but manufactured cylinders that are all around this chamber. Something happens that puts them in, at risk, and the geologist and the biologist are like, we're out of here. They just get nervous. Yeah, we're gone. And so they go to leave, and these guys inspect this chamber. And they want to take the space jockey in to study it. Yes, there's the head. They find the head. And they also find that the body has been dead for about 2,000 years. Which is another reference to 2,000 years ago, would have been just after the death of Christ. Another reference to the fact that maybe this all has something to do with Jesus. Well, also, isn't there in the murals, isn't there something about Jesus? Yeah, one of the murals, it looks like they they sent Jesus. And supposedly, isn't one of the murals also of a xenomorph? xenomorph? Yeah, one looks like a xenomorph. I've never seen either. Really? People are like, oh yeah, it's there, and I'm like, I don't see it. So the mural... Up up in the, the dome ceiling of this room, 
starts to crackle and fade, it looks like it's the the queen, like the xenomorph queen. It starts to crack, and they're like, oh, my God, when we open the door, we change the atmosphere. Get the head in a bag. We got to get out of here. And meanwhile, David's inspecting the cylinders, and when they're all scrambling, he grabs one of the cylinders, and he puts it in his bag. Mm. And they all get out of here, and back on the ship, they're like, you guys got to get here right now. There's a storm coming. And so they run back. They get there. They drop the head. And Shaw's like, ah, we got to get the head. And then the the storm comes through with all this silica shavings and stuff. And it's really going to fuck her up. And she gets thrown away. And then Holloway goes after her. And they're both, like, hiding behind a rock or something like that from this storm until David just kind of comes out and grabs them both. It's so funny the way they're floating. <laughs> yes, because he's attached to like a lead and they're in this heavy wind that, that's tossing them around. So they're just kind of floating in the air <laughs> as he as he winches them back to a side door and then they get inside. It's really funny. It is really funny. <laughs> and they're like, hey, where's Fifield and Milburn? I'm like, what? They left before us. They should be back already. Nope. They're not here. They got lost. They got lost. Fifield, the geologist and the mapping guy, <laughs> gets lost. Yeah. And they're like, well, there's a storm. It's not going to be up for another couple hours. You're there all night, dog. Get comfortable. And so they're getting kind of pissed, especially Fifield. So they decide to experiment on the head. They end up making it explode. Yes. David takes off the face of this elephantine space jockey and he removes it and there's just a giant human head inside there. Now we've seen this before, which which is why I kind of wish we didn't get that beginning of time sequence at the very beginning. Because then we, the only human head we would have seen is the is the giant one in the chamber and it would have been interesting to see that there's a human head underneath what we thought was the space jockey, that was the actual being. Well, if you were like me and the first scene made absolutely no fucking sense to you, this would have still been surprising. Because <laughs> sure. I never, I didn't, I had no clue what that yeah. meant. I was like, what the fuck was that? Yeah. And so they inject it with something to fuck with the electricity in the brain and convince it it's still alive. But then it starts like wincing in pain. And so they they seal it up. And then it just explodes. <laughs> Meanwhile, Charlize comes up to David and yeah. she says, what did he say? Because David was in a room and he was talking to somebody and then he leaves and she's like, what did he say? He said, try harder. Yeah, he, he originally wasn't going to tell her, but then she got super pissed and threw him against a wall. He's like, whatever, fine. He said, try harder. Okay. So... It's during this time that David also Well they also they they do some more experimentation on the head they find out that its DNA matches ours. Same DNA. David opens the cylinder and he pulls out this these like ampules full of something and it looks kind of like it's living and he dips his finger in it and this is when he says, you know, large things have small beginnings or whatever it is that line is that's famous from the trailer. Big things have small beginnings. And you can see it on his finger, and he has the Wayland yutani symbol, or is just the Wayland symbol. the same symbol. stuff from the first movie? What same stuff? The goop that John Hurt picks up? Maybe. The KY stuff? Maybe. I don't know. 
and then he goes and he talks to Holloway, and this is when it's this is when the whole like you can understand why that would be disappointing conversation takes place. What we hope to achieve was to meet our makers, to get answers. Why they why they even made us in the first place. Why do you think your people made me? We made you because we could. Can you imagine how disappointing it would be for you to hear the same thing from your creator? <laughs> I guess it's a good thing you can't be disappointed, huh? Yes. It's wonderful, actually. Holloway's getting drunk because, hey, we found out it's real. We were right the whole time, but they're all fucking dead. And he's kind of excited and depressed and, you know, he's being kind of a jerk. And so David offers him a drink and then dips his well, finger in Well, he says to him, what would you be willing to do to find these answers that you came so uh-huh. far for and now they're all dead? What would you be willing to do? And he says anything. Anything and everything. And so David dips his finger in the drink that he gives to Holloway and Holloway drinks it. And then he goes and he talks to Shaw. And after that conversation about, you know, what are you saying? I'm worthless because I can't create. No, he wasn't saying that, Shaw. That there is nothing special about the creation of life. Right? Anybody can do it. I mean, all you need is a dash of DNA and half a brain. Right? I can't. Great life. What does that say about me? Stop being willfully melodramatic. Willfully. No, he I mean, come on. He was being inconsiderate. Bullshit. No, he was being inconsiderate. No, he wasn't I understand. Yes. About her. No, he just wasn't thinking because that's a leap in logic to get there. And she knows he didn't mean that. And she still accuses him of it. He's being inconsiderate. Yeah. But she's being a bitch. She knows for a fact that's not what she me- that's not what he meant. And then she starts breaking down and accusing him of it. That's all on you, Shaw. That is all on you. He was being inconsiderate, but you know he didn't mean that. It's infuriating. I love Shaw. I think she's an incredible character. It really bothers me this one moment. How else were they going to tell us that she couldn't have kids? It's also kind of pointless that she can't have kids. No, it's not. Doesn't affect the plot in any way. It doesn't affect the meaning of the movie in any way. It's just kind of funny with what happens later. So then they they fuck. I think they're showing us the power of what these beings could do. Creating life. Yeah. Meanwhile, back on the back in the pyramid, <laughs> the geologist and the biologist are just wandering around, yep. and the captain is watching. And the captain's like, "Uh, there picking was up movement. some movement on a life form," and they're like, "What the fuck?" And he's <laughs> like, "Uh, yep, <laughs> there's a life form." Oh, oh and then it just oh, disappeared. God. Guess it's, it's gone. a glitch. What do you mean it's a glitch? <laughs> Like, what did he say? It was east of us? Okay, we're going west. (laughs) And so they go. uh, The mapping. So the mapping geologist got lost in caves that he says all look the same. Dude, you're a geologist. You love rocks. They shouldn't all look the same to you. Then they find their way back to this chamber. 
And they decide, I guess, this is where they're going to stay the night. Which, by the way, we never find out what that movement is. No, I think it's supposed to be the thing they find. The hammerpede? Is that what it's That's called? That's what it's called. <laughs> I think it's it's running around and it's it's not hitting all the sensors because it's so small. I guess. And then and then there's these What's it called? A hammerpede. It's like a snake and it has an unfolding head that has a shape of like a hammerhead shark. So that's not the same thing that bursts out of John Hurt's chest. No. What form of evolution is this? You're right. You're right. There's inconsistencies. How one, one thing many you need stages to, does this creature go through? One thing you need to understand is that their creation changes based on what they infest. Right? They they well, share DNA with their host. A different one. What do you mean? Yo, we absolutely have. There's one that looks like a dog in a- in Alien Three. Maybe it's Resurrection. There's a dog shaped one. Oh, when yeah, no. There's tons of different ones, and and it depends on what they what they kind of so. So it's like the thing. Well, the thing can kind of willfully change its shape, whereas this changes based on its host. And this is the most essential form, this hammerpede, before it's ever had a host. <laughs> so they find it, the snake thing. But how come when it came out in the original, it was a it was a face hugger? Because that's after what happens in this movie. Ah. So. But, we, but they're different planets. Oh, my God. They're different ships. Yes. Yes, there's an evacuation that takes place on this planet. The other one, the other ship only gets so far as LV-426 before it has to crash. And that's the one they find in the original Alien after it's infested all of these engineers. And so it now has changed based on the so engineer's this is DNA. before it's ever mixed yes. with that DNA. This is the most essential form of the Xenomorph. Got it. Okay. <laughs> this is all my understanding because you get none of this from the movie itself. No. Anyway, None of it. Uh, Milburn, the biologist, approaches an unknown and potentially dangerous snake-like life form as if it were a fucking puppy. Yep. It's like, oh, Lord, you cute. Well, because he loves you. all animals, man. Oh, God. That's how What's-His-Name died. This movie is a bunch of idiots making stupid mistakes that are counter to everything their characters are supposed to be. And that's so frustrating. It's so frustrating. And it, it it leads to people, I think a lot of people, really disliking this movie. And I kind of get that. I can understand that. But it's, it's something that I can be angry about and I can also just kind of throw away. <laughs> These are idiots in an unfamiliar situation. They're scared. They act ways that they shouldn't act. That's human nature. We're going to get that later with the Prometheus school of running away from things. <laughs> Anyway, the thing wraps around Milburn's arm, and when he convinces Fifield to cut it off, it's breaking my arm. It's breaking yeah, my arm. He goes to cut it at first, and the thing squeezes, and then it snaps his arm back. Ah! Milburn's arm back. Yes. And then it goes into his suit. Well, Fifield cuts its head off. It grows a new head. <laughs> 
and then it sneaks into his suit where the acid burned it, and then it wraps up into his into his head and in, in his helmet, and then into his mouth. Yes, and. Meanwhile, the other one dies somehow. Fifield too. falls face first in the goop, and it starts melting oh. the the helmet in on his face, and we see it's like burning. But how come when he touched skull. it before, it didn't do that? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know the answer to that question. Okay. Meanwhile, back on the ship. Why, when David touched it, did it do nothing to him? I don't know. Okay. Uh, meanwhile, back on the ship. Nobody knows this is happening because Yannick is supposed to be watching everything. The captain, Idris Elba. But, but he's having instead, sex. he's having sex. With Charlize. Yes, he's playing a concertina. <laughs> and he says it was the property of Stephen Stills and she has no idea who that is. That's, why the fuck would she? And why the fuck would he have that? Because he you likes Crosby, Stills, Stephen Nash, and Stills Young. fucking flute makes it for another concertina. however many years. Thousand years, hundred years, hundred years. I can't do math. <laughs> it's a hundred years. <laughs> Last another hundred years. Yeah, and why not? Somebody a hundred years from now is gonna give a shit. Yeah. People today don't know who the fuck Steve. It might Cobb not Stills, be real. Nash and whatever is Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. <laughs> anyway, and they did the song "Love the One You're With," and that's what he sings because he wants to. Fuck. It's like in Star Vickers. Trek. Love Star the Trek. One you're with. They love everything from our yes, century. They just happen to love everything from our century. The, the great expanse of history that far into the future, and they just happen to love everything around where we are right now. <laughs> yes. um, so the next day, they take a second expedition. Well, who else is having sex? We already said Shaw and. Well, did you say what? I said they fuck. Did you see what Holloway has as an eye? Yes. So the next morning they're going to make a second expedition and they're getting ready and everything. And Holloway is like, oh, man, my eyes are all bloodshot. I have I'm hungover. And then he starts like looking at his eyes and then he sees a little worm like physically sticking out of his eye and burrow into his eye. And he's like, oh, Jesus. But he doesn't do anything or tell anybody. Yeah. So he goes on this second expedition. They go back to the structure and they find Milburn, but not Fifield, I think. And David, off on his own, finds another chamber where there are all these sarcophagi. It's like the cockpit. Yes. Yeah, just like where we saw in in the first Alien movie with the space jockey. And there are all these uh, these sort of sarcophagi, but he finds one of them that looks like it's activated, like it's still on and there might be a living engineer inside of it, basically in cryosleep. But he also finds another hologram that shows him how to work the ship. Yes, he he plays a little flute. Yes. Why? Why? Yes. Do they play a flute? And they press little is spongy this, circle buttons. Is this the Star Trek episode where no, he goes trying. and lives for a hundred years <laughs> and then knows how to play the flute? <laughs> they They try to... Make it so foreign. Okay, there's a reason why we press buttons that have symbols for understandable letters and commands. The reason why we do that is so because that anyone who can speak any language right. can figure it out. I mean, it's just it's the natural way that our minds work, and they're trying to say, oh well, it's so alien that you're going to control things with notes on a flute. <laughs> no, you're steering a fucking ship. 
You need to be more precise than that. Oh, that was an F sharp, not an E flat. <laughs> now we're crashing. Anyway, all the flute really does is just turn the thing on. And then they press these little spongy circles to, to do things. Like, the controls are ridiculous. But anyway. Yeah, they're squishy circles. <laughs> yeah. So weird looking. He sees a, a, a hologram of a star system and he charts a map that shows a pathway from here to Earth. Yes. And somehow he figures out that they intended to kill us. I don't know how. I think it's just he puts the things together because he knows that the, that they had all that shit that were weapons. So Holloway's starting to get really sick. This is when they found the body. This is when they found uh, Milburn's body. And Shaw starts freaking out. We got to get him back to the ship. But then also there's the fucking hammerpeds or whatever that come bursting out of Milburn's body. <laughs> And so they're freaking out about that, and she's freaking out about about Holloway, and they all have to get the fuck out of here. <laughs> so they go to leave, and they get back, and Vickers doesn't let them in. And she's absolutely right. Just like Ripley was right in the first movie. And yet, now we sp we're supposed to think that she's a bitch. So instead, she drops the thing, and she's holding a flamethrower, and she's like, nobody's getting on board this ship. Like, he's please, he's sick. And she's like, that's why he's not getting on board. Duh. But ultimately, Holloway's like, do it. Just do it. He's in so much pain and he doesn't know what's happening he to him. He knows he's going to die. Yeah. And so he gets closer and she's like, stay back. And he keeps walking up to her. And she's like, stay the fuck back. And she Get has the no fuck choice. Back. Guard your grill. <laughs> she has no choice but to blast him with this flamethrower and set him on fire. Now, apparently, that was Charlie's throne. Literally lighting a, a stuntman on fire. That's awesome. And so that look that she has is like her legitimate terror that she just lit a human man on fire. That is so cool. <laughs> really, really cool. So now Holloway is dead. <laughs> so everybody else gets on board. Yeah. And David is taking a look at Shaw. Oh, because she collapses. Yeah. So they take her in. And they find out that she is pregnant. Yeah. With not a traditional fetus. No, it's about three months along. And she's like, that's impossible. We had sex 10 hours ago. And it's like, well, this isn't a traditional fetus. And she wants to see what it is. He doesn't want her to. They end up. I she, think, no, he knocks her out. Yeah. And then she wakes up and they're like, they think she's still passed out. She's totally doped. Yes. As the lady from Game of Thrones yeah, says. Yeah, they're, they're going to, like, put her back in stasis until they can figure out what's going on. That's the plan. But ult ultimately, that means they want to be able to take this specimen back to Earth. She ends up knocking them the fuck out. With zero consequences, by the way. No consequences. And she's freaking out she and she runs, runs to... To this uh, extremely high-tech... Auto dock. Yes, which she saw earlier in Charlize Theron's room, and which was is like, an "Why would pod. you? Why would you need this?" And she's and she was like, "Don't touch things." That yeah, it has all the you. amenities. This is for me. This is this is my pod. It's basically my apartment on the ship, but when and she it's gets an escape there, pod as well. It's she for can't men use it. Only. It's been calibrated for a man only. But it's an intense moment, so you're probably not supposed to be thinking about that too much. <laughs> And she gets in and she tells it, what, that there's a tumor that needs to be removed or something? And so something. it cuts open her stomach. 
it anesthetizes her air, the area where it's going to cut open and then it slices it open with a laser and then it reaches in with these forceps and it pulls out this it's what would eventually become the the chest burster in this they call it a trilobite and then it's in this condom <laughs> filled with fluid again more condoms so that they can poke it and it'll burst and all this goop will come out and, and it's it's alive over her being held by these forceps and it has all these tentacles and it starts freaking out and she's just under it and this thing isn't opening fast enough and she needs to slide her face underneath it as it's freaking out being held by these forceps and she finally gets out and closes the auto dock and it sterilizes the auto dock theoretically killing whatever is inside of it and this moment is the single most terrifying moment in the entire movie. It got me the first time I saw it. I was like, (laughs) 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 it's a fantastic scene. It is very good. It's, it's really, really good, but she manages to get out. It stapled her wound closed, but now she's in a lot of pain later. You'll see that the wound's gone, but the staples are still there because the auto doc like seals that up for her, but it's still very, very painful. It's at this point that Fifield comes back and they're like, Fifield's here. What? Because they find his sensor. It's just outside the ship that identifies him. And they're like, okay, well, let's go outside and check on it. And they see him all folded up. Kind of like I said, Lambert was supposed to be in the first one. And then he he's like, uh, uh, his body's out here. I don't know what's going on. And the <sighs> dude turns around. And while he's turned around, Fifield unfolds and stands up and he's kind of like zombie-like. Yes. Which there's no explanation as no. to why this happens. No. But Yannick ends up killing him with the flamethrower with the help of some of the other guys. Yes. Then they go on a third expedition. Yannick has figured it all out at this point. He's like... They're not terraforming this place. They terraformed this one area so they could work in it. This is a military base. They were creating a biological weapon. They lost control of it. And the whole thing shut down. We should not be here. We should go back. You know what this place is? Those uh, engineers. This ain't their home. It's an installation. Maybe even military. And they put it out here in the middle of nowhere because they're not stupid enough to make weapons of mass destruction on their own doorstep. That's what all that shit is in those vases. They made it here. It got out. It turned on them. The end. It's time for us to go home. But they do go back on a third expedition because David has found this living engineer. And Wayland. He has woken up Wayland from his cryo sleep, and Wayland's been on the ship the entire fucking time. Yes. It's also revealed at this point that Vickers is his daughter, and this really intense sort of con moment from the second where he's like, con. And you're like, well, if I hadn't seen the original, why would this be important? In the moment, why would he have said it like this? It's the same sort of thing. Father. It's like, well, why would she have said it like that if not for the audience? Exactly. It's kind of annoying. And I I remember even, like, at the time, I was like, wait, were we not supposed to have known that? Yeah. <laughs> was that supposed to be a reveal? Like, I right. had forgotten uh-huh. that they hadn't told us. Right. So they're going to go back and talk to this living engineer. Yannick is like, we shouldn't be doing this. <laughs> Shaw also says we should not be doing yeah. this. Yeah. 
But she goes with them, and they go in there, and they wake up this engineer, and David goes to talk to him in what he has deciphered their languages based on the writings that they find everywhere. And it says something to him because Mr. Wayland asks him, like, oh, ask him such and such. And David says something, and it just grabs him and then tears off his head and then hits Wayland with the head. Yes. <laughs> it's this kind of funny but also intense moment where now David's head is loose on it's the floor. Bizarre. It's just yeah. like, what is this doing in here? Sitting next to Wayland who's dying, and David can't die, so he's just his head, and he has to watch his father die. And he's like, yeah, but I don't think he really gave a shit. Well, he's kind of like, you know, good luck, sir. You know, and whatever comes after this. I guess. We, you don't get your answers, but, you know, good luck on this next adventure. This I know. Have a good journey, Mr. Wayland. This engineer is played by Ian White, who played the Predator in Aliens vs. Predator and AVP Requiem. <laughs> so this isn't his first alien movie. Shaw runs away. <laughs> and the engineer gets into his outfit, the space jockey outfit, and turns this room into the cockpit. Guess I'm just going to get back to business. Yes, the business <laughs> of destroying humanity. <laughs> That's what they want to do this whole time they were here to destroy humanity. And the inference is, we created you, we tried to guide you, and then you killed our guide, Jesus. And so we need to shut this down before you cause more destruction. Humans are broken. It was a failed experiment. And so they were going to send this stuff to Earth to kill humans. That's the implication. But again, it's not explicit. And so Shaw's running, and the area where the pyramid is is starting to open up to where the croissant ship can come out. And they're like, oh my god, what's going on back on the ship? And she's shouting back at them, stop it. Whatever you do, stop it. It's headed for Earth. It's carrying death, and it's headed for Earth. It's kind of a reference to the Hungarian titles, where the alien is referred to the as the death. Yannick, if you don't stop it, it won't be your home to go back to. It's, it's carrying death, and it's headed for Earth. So Yannick is like, Vickers, if you don't, I'm going to crash into this thing. If you don't want to crash into it, you get on this escape pod. And she can't get ready in time, and he already sends the escape pod out. And so she has to get on these little one-man escape pods. So she gets strapped in and shoots her out to, like, leave her on this planet with this escape pod. Shaw is running back to her away from this thing, and Yannick with Benedict Wong and the other pilot guy, because they had a bet. Yeah, they've been having bets all this time. Yeah, it's so But lame. they just basically really say, lame. we're going to go down with the, our captain. Yes, exactly. And they crash into the croissant ship, and it prevents it from leaving. And the thing falls down, it hits, it lands kind of on its side, and then it starts rolling. And they run directly away from it in the path that it's rolling. So we have Shaw I've and Vickers said, running away. I've this is the Prometheus school of running away from said, things. Yes. If you're a scientist... 
in a movie. Yes. And you can't think of something that I could think of. Here's the Your thing. Your movie is flawed. Here's the thing. This is what happens to living beings. They seize up and they panic and they do the thing that comes to them instinctually, not logically, instinctually. That's why deers freeze in headlights and then they end up getting hit by the car. It's similar. We know to run, but we can't think of a strategy. We just run and this happens. But that said, it doesn't make it not seem ridiculous to the audience. (laughs) And so... Shaw falls, she trips, and as it's coming down on her, she rolls out of the way. (laughs) Vickers keeps running, and then she falls, turns around on her back, and goes, ah, as it crushes her, just like the Zamboni machine in Austin Powers. (laughs) And it just crushes her. And then, as Shaw is, is sitting there, oh my god, it almost crushed me, it starts to fall sideways now. It's run out of momentum. But it can't stand up, so it starts to tip over. And so she has to run away from that, and then that crashes. And then David calls out to her. He's still on comms. He's still alive. He's like, Shaw, get the (laughs) fuck out of there. He's after you. He's coming for you. So the engineer survived the crash, and now he's pissed. (laughs) (laughs) And he's going to kill Shaw. And Shaw gets back to Vickers' escape apartment. The engineer breaks in. There's a hole breach or whatever, and then it closes again and it seals off. She gets to the autopod area, and there's tentacles. And this thing has grown, just like it would in Original Alien, where it's the chestburster, right? The chestburster grows into what we know as a xenomorph. What's really happening here is this is growing into a face hugger. Why? There's an extra stage of development. We have the hammerpede. And then we have the trilobite, which is this thing. It grows and it grows and it grows. And so when the engineer comes to kill Shaw, she opens the door and these tentacles come out and they grab the engineer instead. It's kind of awesome. Shaw manages to get away and this thing just latches onto. It's huge because remember, the engineer is huge too. And it latches onto him and smothers him. And then he dies. And then eventually this thing dies. Shaw gets away. She finds David's head and finds another ship. Well, no, David tells her. There's more ships. We can escape. And she's like, how? And he tells her there are more ships and I know how to fly them. Because at first he's like, you need to take me with you. And she's like, I'm not fucking taking you with me. And he's like, yes, you are. Because I'm the only way you're going to get off this planet. Yeah. Which is kind of fun. It is. But she's kind of softened to David a little bit here because she has she has a singular focus, and that is, I'm getting these fucking answers. <laughs> well, I mean, at this point, what the fuck else is she going to do? Right. But it's like <laughs> she wanted to know about why they created us. Now she wants to know why they want to kill us. Which is obvious. Right. But she, Humanity I mean, sucks. Yeah. that That's the message, that humanity <laughs> sucks. But it's not really clear. Nothing about this movie is really obvious. Why do you think God threw up his hands a long time ago? It's basically that. That's exactly (laughs) what it is. Sending the xenomorphs to Earth is the engineer's version of the Great Flood. That's what it is. She puts his head in a bag and she's like, sorry. And he's like, that's quite all right. (laughs) (laughs) And they get in this new ship and they're taking off. And he's like, what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to get my answers. Then they fly away. Cut back to the ship 
with the engineer and the trilobite. And then it starts like jostling and then boom, pops out of him. And it's this sort of proto-xenomorph. Yes, the first version where its jaw, instead of having a mouth inside of a mouth, it has a jaw inside of a jaw. And it like snaps open and its its bottom jaw juts out and it comes out of its mouth. Uh, So it's not exactly like the xenomorph that we know, but it's an early version of it. It's kind of slithery and slinky. And it screams. And Shaw has her final entry, which we didn't talk about, but it's very similar to the one that Ripley gives at the end of Alien, saying she's the last living member of the Prometheus. Final report of the vessel Prometheus. The ship and her entire crew are gone. If you're receiving this transmission, make no attempt to come to its point of origin. There's only death here now, and I'm leaving it behind. It is New Year's Day. The year of our Lord, 2094. My name is Elizabeth Shaw, last survivor of the Prometheus. And I'm still searching. She says there's only death here now. Don't, Don't come here. Don't come here. Yeah, there's only death here now. Which is probably the SOS that they got at the beginning of Alien. No, the that's the one on LV-426 that... That was sent out from the ship that landed on LV-426. So there's more more bad things happen. It didn't only get them on 223. It also got them on a ship that had escaped and that had to crash land on 426. Anyway, so Giger worked again on this alien as well. Uh, he died shortly after this, two years after this movie. It's a different xenomorph because it had a different host, but also this was supposed to be a prequel, then it wasn't, and then it was kind of again, but he didn't want it to be too close, and then the studio said yes, and then the studio said no. They were all over the place with what this movie was supposed to be, so it kind of looked a little bit different than what we know a xenomorph looks like, and people got kind of upset about that, and that's why in Alien Covenant, not only do they call it Alien, even though it's the sequel to Prometheus – But they show you a xenomorph like we know a xenomorph to look. Like that one shot of it landing on the ship. That's the xenomorph. But yeah, again, one thing to remember is they change their design based on their host. So they don't start looking like the xenomorphs that we know until they have a human host. You think after what happened in Alien 3, mild spoilers for Alien Covenant. You should know just based on who you know to be in the movie at all, but you would think they would have learned their lesson from alien three that you don't kill off characters in between movies, especially characters. People like Shaw dies in between Prometheus and alien covenant. And it's infuriating because I really like her. I don't even remember alien covenant. I do. I don't remember it at all. David meets another version of himself. It's the David that's been stranded on this new planet that they oh go to in Alien God. Covenant. And doesn't one of them end up being good and then that one dies and then you're yeah, left with the evil one Yeah, there's a good and there's an the evil end? one and yeah. I uh-huh. kind of remember yes. that. I remember being pissed at the end. It was another movie where a lot of people do some really stupid shit. You're on an alien planet and, and people do really, really stupid shit. It's not a bad movie. 
I really like Michael Fassbender in these movies. He is fantastic in I these movies. I love Michael Fassbender. Yes, he's very, very good. Yeah, uh, so that's that's Prometheus. Again, Alien is very claustrophobic. This one is all over the place. They make three journeys back to the ship, whereas they only made one in the first movie. Uh, there's way too many people. So much of this takes place outside with yes. giant set pieces. Absolutely, obviously, Alien is the better film here. Yeah. However, I think Prometheus is entertaining. I, I like this movie. I do. I just have way more complaints about it. It has a lot of problems. Uh, they both use and subvert the final girl trope. Yeah. Which was a little bit, it wasn't as established back in the 70s when Alien was done. But they take that and they combine that with the psycho kill off your lead actor that you think is going to be the protagonist to reveal there's an actual different protagonist. I don't think anybody was confused about the fact that Shaw was the main protagonist. No, 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 no. I'm talking about an alien. Oh. They combined these two things, I think, to great effect. And then they subvert it to where they're not quivering, screaming, oh, my God, people. They're like, no, fuck this bitch. Like. Like, go over you, bitch. Yes. Alien does it. I think a lot better, especially with Shaw being, she's kind of an emotional wreck sometimes. Because Ripley was written not to be a woman. Yes, exactly. Which is the problem. It should tell you something. (laughs) Yes. Yes, absolutely. It should tell you something. Where Shaw was written explicitly to be a woman, have women problems and have women emotions that are stereotypical. And that's kind of frustrating. It's very frustrating. But they still do the whole, no, she's badass, and she's going to survive because she's tenacious, and she can take care of herself. When she hits that door, and the trilobite comes out and attacks the engineer, it's so awesome. When she's in that auto dock and has to get the cesarean, that's really cool. I really like Shaw, and then they fucking kill her off in between movies. Well, she probably didn't want to be in it for whatever reason. Yeah, probably. And they were probably forced to do it. Yeah. Any other lightning round stuff, Kelsey? No. What do you think this movie has on Rotten Tomatoes? A 66? 73, actually. Ridley Scott's ambitious quasi-prequel to Alien, I called it a preboot, may not answer all of its big questions, but it's redeemed by its haunting visual grandeur and compelling performances, particularly Michael Fassbender as a fastidious android. Very true. Yes. I think that's very accurate. Uh, Metacritic of 64, closer to what you said. Uh, A cinema score of B, which I am shocked people left this movie that satisfied. Oh, yeah, because when I walked out, I was mad. Right? When I first walked out, I was like, what the fuck was that? I don't think I really decided I liked the movie until after Micah and I were, like, talking about it for a while. Yeah, it wasn't until I saw it a second time that I decided I liked it. Yeah. So... Because we all went in expecting an alien prequel, which is not what we should have gone in expecting. Yeah. I mean, it is an alien prequel, but it's so far removed that it doesn't matter that it is. I wrote this down. It's it's ridiculous. But let me read this to you. It's a very pretty movie. It's fun and frustrating in equal measure. There's fun stuff to think about, but to what end? It's very well made, but why was it made? Imagine a beautiful Victorian house with incredible architecture. You walk in and the architecture is still beautiful, but every room is empty. 
Your ears are filled with the echoes of your steps and every word you say. It's beautiful, but empty, and that just makes you kind of confused. You ask the designer why, and he just says, isn't it fun to listen to the echoes? I mean, sure, a little, I guess, but now I'm even more confused. <laughs> that is kind of what it's like watching this movie. That, that's my interpretation of this movie. Do you think 73 Rotten Tomatoes and 64 Metacritic Average, do you think that's overrated or underrated? Just slightly under. What would you give it? Let me give it 76. I think it's a solid movie. It just yes. has a, it has tons of problems. Tons and tons of just logical, just what the fuck was that uh, problems. And it's really sad because I think if, if, I think if they had spent just a little more time working out the kinks, this could have been a good movie. Yeah. I think I'll give it a 79, not quite an 80, but really close to that. I think if you had given this to Damon Lindelof now and not eight years ago, I think he would have churned out something a little bit better. He's a little bit too close to Lost on this one. <laughs> not close enough to Leftovers. <laughs> That's kind of my opinion of Prometheus. With that said, that is Alien Week. And that kicks off December for us, Kelsey. What are we watching next week? Next week, <laughs> we're going into our foray of sequels. With... Bad, bad Stephen King sequel. <laughs> so we're gonna see Pet Cemetery two. Why are we watching Pet Cemetery two, Kelsey? Pray because Why? Edward Furlong is in it. Apparently, and I'm so excited. Apparently, this was from the early nineties. <laughs> so we're gonna watch Pet Cemetery two. The did sequel. we cover Pet Cemetery the remake on the show, or did we just talk about it? We just talked about it. The more I think about it, the more that movie makes me angry. <laughs> but anyway, go ahead. So we're gonna watch Pet Cemetery two and it chapter two. Yeah, so we'll wrap up our conversation about it. We still, to this day, have not seen it chapter two. So this will be our first time watching it. Yes. I'm intrigued. Hopefully it's not as terrible as everyone's saying it is. Yeah, it's also like three hours long. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, boy. Here we go. It happens. <laughs> Until next week, you can always reach us at podcemetery.com, where you can get a list of every single episode we've ever made. Also, every single movie we've ever covered in alphabetical order. It's a great way to browse through old episodes and see maybe what you might want to listen to. Don't forget to subscribe in your podcatcher of choice. Uh, rating and reviewing, especially a five-star written review is the best thing you can do for us uh, in that format. Also sharing us with friends is even better and listening in the GD first place is even better than that. We love each and every one of you until next week. I've been Chris. I've been Kelsey. And this has been pod cemetery. But before we go, Kelsey, any last words? Mother, I've turned the cooling unit back on. Mother.
the to the sacred place. This ain't a dream, I can't escape. Molding some fangs that are picking up bones. Spirits moaning among the tombstones. So do you have any questions about this ship and like what it is and why it looks the way it does or anything like that. It's okay if you don't. I really don't. I okay. mean, I, they're miners of ore, which just makes me want to play Catan. Yeah. <laughs> Did you know that Catan's coming out with a, uh, AR game like Pokemon go? We're making the whole world Catan apparently. That's weird. Yeah. Made by the same people. Niantic. Anyway. All right. So that's getting cut out. <laughs> I was getting him confused with the the robot from the second film. Stop it. (laughs) Not the robot from the second film. (laughs) He's the evil guy from the corporation in that movie. Oh, uh, yeah. What's mad about you? Yeah, uh, I can't. I can't think of it. Okay. And who lets him in? The robot. We haven't revealed that he's a robot yet. The Hobbit. Bravo lists this scene as. The second scariest movie moment of all time on a hundred scary movie moments list that they created. What's the number one? I don't know. Okay. And I forget what he says. What does he say? I don't know, but I wrote, that is an evil robot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we don't know he's a robot yet. <laughs> two researchers, two scientists, two... Archaeologists? Archaeologists? Space archaeologists? They're scientists. Well, they, I mean, they, they're, they're, they dig up a, a place in, in Ireland. Yes. They're not in space. They just happen to go to space. They just say two scientists. Oh my God. You're just yawning all over the place. I see how it is, how boring I am to you. I don't know if that's intentional or not, but it's I really love idiotic. Rocks. Yes. <laughs> I love rocks. <laughs> they're <anyway>. not rocks. <laughs> They get That's further inside bed. and they find you ignore me. What? So that's from Breaking Bad. Oh right. They're they're minerals. <laughs> <laughs> it it euthanize or not, it doesn't euthanize her. Um it It takes it out. No, no, no. What's the term I'm looking for? It, it's a cesarean. No, she can't do the cesarean. Um or it numbs you. What's it? What's that called? Anesthetics. Okay. Anesthetize. Yeah. It anesthetizes. It anesthetizes her air, the area where it's going to cut open. I really like Michael Fassbender in these movies. He is fantastic. I in love these movies. Michael Fassbender. Yes, he's very very good. And apparently, no, never mind. He's what? Not, I, I was thinking of his movie. Has a giant penis. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently he does. We've yeah. seen it. <laughs> Unless it was fake. What movie was that? Um, isn't that the one where he where he's he has a sex addiction? Yes! And he ruins his sister's it's life. A good movie, and he has a huge penis. <laughs> Unless it's fake. 